1: Alec Guinness, and I have a boat to pick today. Alec, you weren't in the film we talked about last week. That's right, I wasn't. I absolutely wasn't, but I should have been. Oh. Did you see that David Niven? Uh, Not recently? uh... He's he's quite dead. I actually did see him recently. Stand up, chap. Fine fellow. Mm -hmm. Don't know why I'm so partial all of a sudden. Hold on, let me dial back in. Okay. A long time. A long time. Now you're back. A long time. Yes. So, I think I, Alec Guinness, should have had that role. You know, I auditioned for it. But you know what the thing was? What? David Niven's mouth. You know how... Did you notice how small it was? Uh, sure. It's a very small mouth. Mustache, you know. David Niven's mouth was just big enough to take the manhood of the producer of the movie. Now, I'm not saying that David Niven was any sort of person do that sort of thing. You
2: know, you need to be careful, Mr. Uh, Guinness. We don't want to get a, you don't want to get fined for slander from the family of I'm David Niven. not
1: saying that David Niven enjoyed what he did. He's a good man. Okay. okay. And, you know, if, if he did enjoy it, that would be his thing. But I don't think he did. But he did it, you see. And I, having this, you know, quite large mouth, was not an acceptable person for that particular task. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. And it made me reconsider much of what I had thought about myself and my life and my roles. What does George Lucas's dick taste like? Mm, I'll tell you, uh, I think the better question is to ask him what mine tastes like. My good man. Okay. But it never worked out, you see, and I feel that I should have been in that role. Uh, David Niven's role. I could have played a young and sprightly fighter pilot even better than David Niven. David Niven. What did he ever do, hmm? Uh, the Pink Panther movies. Who was he in those? I think he was his boss. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. Actually, he probably would have made a pretty good crusade himself. Yeah. yeah. I never did like Peter Sellers. He was a bit of a moop. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Yes. Not a fun man to be around, you see. Did you ever hang out with Johnny Carson?
2: <laughs> Personally, no. I well, I'll
1: tell you. Uh, hanging out with Johnny Carson is a, f- is a peach compared to hanging out with Peter Sellers. Oh, okay. Peter Sellers, he's... Yeah, I, I tell you the thing about Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers is one of those comedians that were Fish. always... He was always doing bits. He was always doing his bits, and no one no one wanted to hear those bits because we thought, you know, he, he'll do those bits on film or on stage. But no, he was always doing his bits, and we were like, Peter, Peter, stop it with the bits. Mm-hmm. You're quite unpleasant, and he wouldn't stop.
2: Uh, would you like to introduce our film this week? Ah, oh, yes, Christmas? the
1: film this week is a film that I absolutely should have been cast in. Okay. Of and I hold... Much malice toward Messrs. Powell and Pressburg, I hold much malice toward them, but that was last week's movie, A Matter of Life and Death. This week's movie is quite different. This week's movie is the... checks notes Beatles film, A Hard Day's Night. I, I think you'll enjoy these lads from Liverpool. They're quite energetic. Now, I must go back to heaven. I have to have a cribbage match with David Niven. Goodbye. Long time. Wow, oh, Guinness,
2: alleginness Guinness just came to roast, uh, just came to roast <laughs> David Divin and then took off. I
1: think it was part of an intimidation plan for the uh, Cribbage match. Mm. I feel like if, you know, if he, because David Divin will be listening in live. I don't know if you know, but we do have a live feed to uh, the other world. Yes. Oh, uh, nice. I like that. Well, now that we have an, now that we know what it is, we, we saw a matter of life and death and we know what we're dealing with now. Right. That was actually the key, Brendan, the key to our entire uh, uh, existence right now was that movie, and I think that might have been why I liked it so much. Oh, yeah. okay. It, it it filled in all the holes, as it were.
2: <laughs> as the as they say in the film, stand and, stand and deliver, fill the hole, fill the hole.
1: <laughs> it's Edward James almost catchphrase in that movie. That's hey right. kids, fill the holes. <laughs> Thank you for doing the accent. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, he sounded more like Cheech Marin. My apologies. Yeah. <laughs> no who is this is hey man you want to learn some math man no that's um, yeah no we can't You're, do that anymore let's you, move on you canceled jason i'm canceled
2: uh <laughs> i'm brendan i'm jason i guess and this is a podcast called for
1: screen and
2: country and if you're tuning in for the first time ladies and gentlemen this podcast is about um well we talk about politics mainly and we talk about the swimsuit competitions and who would look best in a bathing suit Mm. um especially in american politics so let's start with mitt romney
1: so we got mitt romney we got julie christie and we've got uh uh, dakota fanning yes who who are we picking three figureheads of american politics mitt romney julie christie dakota fanning (laughs) yeah all white number one Okay, no. This is a podcast about British
2: film. This is a podcast about the top 100 British films of all time, according to the British Film Institute, and this list was made in the year of our Lord, 1999. The year
1: of which we partied, like it was, up until that year, and actually still continue to party as if it was that particular year.
2: Like a prince. Uh. Um and we are talking about our 59th movie, Jason. We're wow. 59 movies deep and now, deep now. And uh but before we talk about this week's movie, we need to read some comments the last week's movie, which is of course A Matter of Life
1: and Death. Jason, we've got comments. We do have some comments about last week's movie and it's A Matter of Life and Death. And this is a matter of grave importance that we talk about this movie. Oh. Okay. Is there a movie called A Matter of Grave Importance? Surely there must That's be. That's a more British-sounding yeah, title. absolutely. <laughs> it's not Life or Death, but it's of it's grave, grave importance. So our first comment today mm-hmm. about that movie is from one Patrick C. Taylor and Patrick writes, uh, Dear <laughs> Fellas. No, he doesn't. He just says, love how the real world is in color and the afterlife is in black and white. I'd put it on par with Black Narcissist and Peeping Tom, and I love 49th Parallel a little more than all of those. Don't know why I haven't seen Watch the Red Shoes yet. Yeah, you're all right. No, yo, no, how dare you? <laughs> um,
2: yeah, no, I it, Black Narcissus is great. Uh, Peeping Tom is one that's coming up at some point. Very that's, nice. That's just Powell.
1: I'm guessing that that's the movie that Georgia McFly's life is based on in Back to the Future.
2: I sure hope not, mm. <laughs> because it's another level. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Christian Zafiroglu has a big comment here. Ah, Powell and Pressburger. Mm evidence that that's it (laughs) (laughs) evidence that there is color even more vivid and beautiful than anything we can experience in the sharpest technology and the best eyes to me these two are among the most intimately connected with the idea of color equaling life and exuberance they always knew exactly how to balance a shot, how to place their actors and props for maximum effect. A Matter of Life and Death may not be the masterwork of the immortal Red Sh- or the immortal Red Shoes or Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, but it is their most romantic and downright fun film. The vision of heaven as a bureaucratic maze is delight- delightfully subversive, and Niven was never better. A fine, elegant introduction to
1: essential filmmakers damn christian that is a uh strong comment that's how
2: i saw this too i saw i i mean i think this was my favorite powell and pressburger it was close for me um but this did feel to me like the most and i'm not saying they're obtuse filmmakers Mm. but this felt to me like the most uh accessible the the most crowd-pleasing one i guess Mm. i could say you know you know what i mean it feels like a romp yeah absolutely
1: and 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 but interesting on a philosophical level and Hmm. and and, and, but funny oh it's got all that it's just like i think visually interesting like it's it's a you know across the board thing total package lex luger absolutely (laughs) this movie is the lex luger of powell and press oh that's not a good that's not a compliment at all (laughs) it's a failed opportunity (laughs) yeah absolutely for a franchise we could have gone back no that's shane douglas oh yeah you're right our next comment rep- comes from Matthew P. Eels. Love um, throwing in those references that nobody gets. <laughs> Matthew says, It's the only Palin Pressburger movie I've seen. I've had the good fortune of seeing it on the big screen, you lucky duck, when the restoration produced by Martin Scorsese was released. I was totally entranced by it and had no idea Kim Hunter was so beautiful. The only thing I had seen her in was Planet of the Apes. How dare you? She's gorgeous in that movie. That's a good movie, too. Um, That's tar- I have not seen it in years, but it's always on my mind. And I'm always on the lookout for a cheap copy of it. Well, clearly you haven't found one. Have you been looking for years? Like, like what, what's cheap, bud? Like what did, $5? What did Matthew do to you? <laughs> but I just wondering what, what cheap is that he hasn't been able to buy this movie. Like, is this movie in such short supply? Is it a Criterion mega edition? I think honestly, I think
2: it for a long time, it was so unavailable that every copy was like 50 bucks.
1: Anyways, he continues. He finishes. I like that there were echoes of it toward the end of Captain America, the first Avenger. Now, I don't think I've seen that one for a long time. What is he talking about? Um, in that, in that he sort of dies and comes back, I guess. Yeah. Well, no, there are
2: shots, I think like similar, oh, the, okay. the way things are shot at the end of that movie is similar does, to matter. D- does like Cap
1: America. bail out of a plane?
2: Uh, <laughs> Yeah
1: no yeah that's what it is
2: that's totally yeah. what it is It's when and he goes he, into the ice because yeah. he's going down in the plane and he's talking to Peggy at the same oh, time. Okay, yeah, All that's right. it. That's cool. Totally then, what it is.
1: then that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that movie. It's in many a, years. I
2: love that. Like a big budget movie like Captain America, which I I'd like a lot. Mm-hmm. I just like how the filmmakers were like, we're going to put in a reference to a movie we really love, yeah. I mean, and such a great scene to reference. Yeah, and yeah. To emulate. Uh, Sharon Horwatt. Yeah, making, I, her, Sharon. making her return. Uh, this movie is absolutely gorgeous like every Powell and Pressburger film David Niven is very good as per usual and the movie kind of feels like if death takes a holiday and wings of desire had a baby especially because of how color is used to empathize the difference between
1: life and death Damn. I've uh, I've never seen either but I have heard of both <laughs> question to the audience out there uh, uh, question/ slash, uh, suggestion uh, I request of you Um, if, so you know how Bob's burgers they have on the on the board they always have like the burger of the day and it's usually a fun pun
2: okay.
1: have has uh, Bob made a Powell and press burger and if he hasn't folks I want you to tell us what you think would be on a Powell and Press burger I mean I'm thinking it'd be like a multicolored salad it, it'd be like it'd be like remember that rainbow ketchup yeah, yeah it'd be like <laughs> different yeah diff, di- it'd be like a green and a purple and Who the fuck thought that was a good idea i don't know that was it was a marketing confusion because you, you know you ate it and if you could get past the color yeah it tasted just like regular ketchup It's like guys i
2: got a great idea we're gonna sell ketchup but slightly
1: less we, we want to we, i guess they thought kids would like it but kids w- weren't that interested in like the color of ketchup it was more what ketchup provided well children see in black and white anyway that's scientifically yeah, proven until know. the
2: age of 10 children
1: are basically dogs until they hit puberty <laughs> And then they're then then they're uh and then real, they're, they're horn dogs. dogs yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god
2: um
1: and then richard. they grow up into wolves oh shit yeah like us what is richard saying richard andrew kalbar says i'm still a colonel blimp man we haven't watched it yet we're getting there love life and death as i do i own it and love my dose of livisy he's the doctor but it's a bit static in the second half. Courtroom drama essentially. Blimp is a tide that sweeps you along nonstop. I'm excited to watch it as long as it will be. That's the first that's the closest thing to a negative comment I yeah, can get for this well, movie. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like um, yeah, it's great, but I like this other one better. Yeah. Uh The Pell Man himself. Yes.
2: Adam Hellman says, maybe my favorite PNP, although that feels like picking a favorite child because I love Red Shoes and Blimps so much, and one of the most vividly gorgeous color films ever made. It's about as good a, as a romantic fantasy can get,
1: and I always get so swept up and affected by the ending as she's going up the stairs. This movie feels like something that a teacher would have shown me in school, like like a cool teacher would have been like on a, on a quiet afternoon, but like, you guys gotta watch a movie that I love, and you should watch this. And then we'd all watch it and probably be bored by it because we were teenagers. But then later in life, you go back to it and be like, wow, that guy was cool. That didn't happen, but it should (laughs) have. Next comment is Julian Oldham, who says, My ranking depends on which I've seen the most recently, but probably... This probably makes my top three uh, PMP after Blimp and Red Shoes. People love Colonel Blimp. They do. The moment of love at first conversation is heart-wrenchingly believable, unlike uh, in a hundred other movies. And the surreal wonder of the scene with the dog and the piper on the beach is characteristically Powell and Pressburger. Absolutely agreed. Like most of their work, it says a lot about things like war, national identity, and the living in, and the importance of living in technicolor, all without losing its characters or magic for a moment. I wish I could watch it for the first time all over again. I'm glad I did get to watch it for the first time.
2: All over again. Yeah. Um, yeah, th- that's one thing we really, we touched on as well, the love at first conversation. Whereas in that movie, it works because it's like, you know, you're, they're, they're in a state of trauma. Yeah. It's, it's, you know. Um, it's maybe not the best foundation
1: for a relationship, but it absolutely is. <laughs> but it, but it's believable. Yes, absolutely. Whereas I
2: think in like like, she's, like, like she said, in hundreds of other movies, you don't buy it. No. I mean, I would say... I mean, I love Red Shoes, but I would say the romance in that is one I'm like, I don't know if I'm 100% there. So, that's just an example. And that's Powell and Pressburger. Uh, Louise Camera says, I love this movie. It's the kind of fantasy that movies are uniquely suited for and just magic in its design. For Powell and Pressburger, it must have felt like a sigh of relief after making all those propaganda movies during the war. The obvious choice in this film... Would have been to make reality be in black and white and heaven in color. So I love how they invert that cliche.
1: Yeah, I, I love that too. That was I wonderful. did
2: not know that they did <laughs> propaganda films. I or maybe I did talk about that in an older episode. My memory is horrible. But those are
1: some really good looking propaganda films.
2: Yeah, guys, if you want to hear if I did say that, listen to our
1: episodes on the Red Shoes <laughs> and Black Narcissus. They're all there, all there. Oh, and one more comment. Samantha McBride just says, "This I learned." Or today I learned that the Wallace and Gromit bakery murder movie title was a pun based on this. What is that movie called? Uh, I'm assuming a, a, ba- a Batter of Life and Death. One sec, one sec, one sec. Good. Samantha is, of course, referring to the 2008 animated comedy Wallace and Gromit A Matter of Loaf and Death. Ah! ah. And you knew that right at, right on the top of your head. Well, yeah, it's, just, uh, it's amazing the things that I store up there. with, uh, And you can recall without any delay whatsoever. Um... But also, I, I think A Matter of Life and Death is a common phrase, and, and I would be surprised if it wasn't a common phrase before that movie came out.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You, wait, but, you're uh, saying, but I Sorry, you're saying that you, you
1: you think it was a common phrase before the movie came out? I, I, th- I would have oh. to think so. Yeah, yeah. I would have to think so. But I, also, that movie is most definitely referring to the movie, because they're a bunch of movie
2: people. Jason, this is going to blow your mind, because Ooh. we talked about this movie in comparison with this movie when we did our episode last week. Yes. But... The number twenty movie on the AFI top one hundred because this was number twenty on the BFI yeah. is "It's a Wonderful Life." Wow, isn't that crazy? Weird that they because uh, yeah. they're they're they have so many similarities and for, they're the exact same number on their respective lists. I think that's
1: crazy. That is weird. Uh, and of the, two, I mean, "Wonderful Life" is good, but I got to go with "Matter, Life, and Death" on this one. I didn't think, I looked at this before, I looked at this before
2: we actually did our episode, and I said, oh man, I mean, I think probably, Jimmy Stewart, I mean, Mm. gotta, but having, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life is a great movie, and I love watching it, especially, you know, once a year, Christmas time. Absolutely. But yeah, this was, uh, this blew me
1: away. Like, this, this does have some sentimentality to it, but I feel like that's a bigger part of It's a Wonderful Life, whereas this is a much more, like, philosophical maybe metaphysical take to it like because really it's a wonderful life is basically he he wishes he wasn't born clarence shows him what life would have been like if he wasn't born no that's scrooge isn't that what happens if i know he, he like he wishes he wasn't born right i thought that was the whole point of it's a wonderful life so if that's not what it is what is the point of it's a wonderful life
2: no he does that at the wait hold on no he does that at the end of the movie that's like one of the
1: last things that no, because at the end of well then what's the first part of the movie <laughs> I swear, let's, let's look this What up. is
2: wrong with us? I've seen this movie multiple times. To be fair, it's been a long time since I saw it. It's only the last part of the movie. <laughs> I think you were mixing that with Scrooge. And by Scrooge, I mean Scrooged, the Bill Murray <laughs> film. Written by
1: Michael O'Donoghue. But yeah, so anyways, the, the point is, is that, uh, yeah, It's a Wonderful Life is a much more sentimental movie. It's focused on George and his connection to his community. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is much more metaphysical, the idea of between the life and death and the afterlife. Like, we, sure, we see Clarence as an angel, so that implies that there is something on the other side. But we never see it, do we? No. No, exactly. So he could just be some guy. Now, let me just let me just say this to you, though,
2: Jason. Now, yes, It's a Wonderful Life has a reputation for its, like, sentimentality. But I, next time if you ever watch it again, hmm. you're gonna be surprised. I think oh. by how like it's kind
1: of dark. Is there a it, scene where Jimmy Stewart gets a blowjob in a car and then a, and then a cop uh, uh, interrupts them? Listen, that wasn't a scene. That was a that was a thing that really happened. You sure? Sure, that wasn't a Dana Carvey bit. I, mean, I can't remember. I confuse it all the time. I
2: don't even know who I am anymore. (laughs) Anyway, boys, I just wanted to say uh, it's been a matter of life and death to get here. (laughs) And uh, I guess you're going to talk about this
1: week's film. The the Beatles, are you familiar, Mr. Stewart? I don't listen to that hip-hop music. Well, thanks for dropping by, Jim. (sighs) Mr. Jimmy Stewart, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, but
2: like he said, it is time to talk about this week's movie. So we should get on with it because we have a big, big episode this week, Jason. A Hard Day's Night. It's been a hard day's night, and
3: I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night, I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. You know I work all day to get your money to buy a thing. And it's worth it just to hear you say you're going to give me everything.
2: So That's right, folks. We're talking about a big one this week. We're mm. talking about number
3: 88
2: on the BFI Top 100. We're talking about A Hard Day's Night. Before we go any further, though, I just want to mention, guys, when you get to the end of our conversation on A Hard Day's Night, stay tuned because we have a big interview with uh, former Saturday Night Live cast member Gary Kroger, who was kind enough to stop by and talk to me about the Beatles for a while.
1: So, And, and not only is Gary uh, a real person, he <laughs> is alive. Yeah, so yeah. a big get for big get for
2: us as, yeah. as far as guests we usually get Absolutely. on the show, and it is neither of us doing an impression. Absolutely,
1: this is for reals, guys. Because yeah. to be fair, I, I don't think I could do a Gary Kroger impression.
2: No, I, I well, your Gary Kroger impression is like it, it's it's okay. Hey guys, I'm Gary Kroger. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. We'll, well, we'll we'll let the listeners decide yeah, later decide. How, it, how it measures up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so stay tuned for that because that'll be at the end of the episode. Uh, an interview with Gary Kroger. He'll talk about the Beatles. He'll talk about John Lennon's death, of course, and. The time that he actually worked with Ringo Starr on Saturday Night Live, so very exciting, very fun stuff, very nice. But a hard day's night. This I've film been working like a dog. This film is directed by Richard Lester, who you may know as the man who single handedly saved Superman. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> with Superman three.
1: <laughs> Wasn't it Superman two? Didn't they bring him in on Superman two to finish after they fired Richard Donner? I thought he also did three. Though. He may have. Yeah. He, you know, he brought, I mean, he, prior saved the franchise. Yeah, he, he saved it. He absolutely. Saved it, and he established a precedent that was later uh, 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 upheld by Office Space with the uh, the the scam of like taking the little bits yes. of uh, transactions. Yes, yeah.
2: Superman three did it, and so did Office Space, and so did another movie I watched recently, which I think specifically references Superman three when they do it. Yeah, but this is uh, this is a film, Hard Days Night, directed by Richard Lester. It stars John Lennon as himself. Paul McCartney as himself, George Harrison as himself, Ringo Starr as himself, Wilfred Bramble as John McCartney, Paul's grandfather, uh, Norman Rossington, who we've actually talked about before because he is the best friend character from Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and he plays Norm, the Beatles' manager. We have John Junkin as Shake, the Beatles' road manager. Victor Spinetti, and I only mention him because he's the TV director, and I really like his like brief scenes with his little sweater and everything. That
1: fucking sweater! <laughs> yeah, that I love fucking that. sweater! Why would anybody wear that sweater? Um. And I
2: mentioned, I'm going to mention Richard Vernon as Johnson, who is the gentleman on the train who comes in and they kind of harass a little bit. Is that I, the
1: Dean from fucking... Uh... Now, this is what <laughs> I want
2: to mention, because previously I said Richard Vernon in another movie we talked about, The Servant, yeah. was also the Dean. I stand corrected. This is just another Richard Vernon? No, his name is John Vernon, uh, and I was wrong, uh, and they are not related uh, in any way, and I apologize.
1: To the Vernon family.
2: To so the Vernon family, both. Yes, both, both Vernon families. Vernon families. But Jason, this is a hard day's night. Now, I got to ask you first before we even get into this movie, the Beatles. Yeah, what is your familiarity with the Beatles? Are you already never heard of them? Fuck them. (laughs) Are you? (laughs) Gary is going to be very upset with you.
1: Are you already a Beatles fan? Yeah, I. uh, I. I wouldn't say that I'm a hardcore Beatles fan, but if we want to go into my Beatles history, and why wouldn't you? Beatles. I had a. I had a really cool music teacher in grade seven. You know, he had a mustache and he. You know, he wore like a sports coat without a tie. And he played a lot of classic rock. And he, Mr. Regan. Was it Jack Black? No, it was Mr. Regan. <laughs> okay. Mr. Regan, if you're out there, thanks, man. Uh, but he, he was like, man, we're going to watch the Beatles documentary. So we watched the, you remember like 1994, they released like the Beatles anthology? Yeah. Yeah. So we watched some of that documentary. This was like 97. I was in grade seven or eight. Uh, we watched some of that documentary and I kind of li- liked the music. And at some point in probably around 2000, I bought the Beatles number one album that was popular at the time because it had 27 hits. Yeah, and so I, I did like the Beatles. I wouldn't say I'm a super fan. Uh, uh, my wife is a little deeper into it than I am. She was uh, a big Beatles fan, and she played the shit out of Rock Band Beatles when it was out. Oh, I had that game. I yeah. love that game.
2: I will say that any time I've ever heard a Beatles song, I've liked it. Mm. Like, there's never been a time when I'm like, oh, that Beatles song. Whew, yeah. That one's a stinker.
1: Yeah, so I've always been a bit of a casual Beatles fan. I've always been happy to hear the music on the radio, but I've never delved into the Beatles insofar as that I was going to go watch Our Day's Night or Help or even yeah. mistakenly watch Sgt. Pepper's thinking they were in it. I'm, and I'm going to make another confession right now, Jason. Sure. I was
2: always under the impression, before I looked at this list, obviously, that this movie was always seen as sort of a silly thing that never really did anything. It was like a, a puff piece, yeah. is what I thought. Yeah. Which, I mean, in, it a, is. in a way, yeah. but also in a way, I mean, we're going to get into it, but this movie is wonderfully crafted yes absolutely um, it is innovative is a
1: foundational movie for the modern music video movement such that it was
2: yeah it's completely innovative um made on a relatively small budget for what they had to do and it's it's definitely um it's on this list so yeah. i mean there's obviously it's not just like an extended music video yeah no there's more <sighs> than that but let's talk so let's 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 fucking get into this shit, Jason.
1: Yeah, this this movie is basically a mockumentary of sorts about the Beatles. I mean, in the sense yeah. that it's clearly there's scripted moments and they have kind of a I mean, I don't really know what kind of plot there is. I guess the plot is they're going to go record some songs on the BBC or the,
2: This movie charts 36 hours yeah. in the life of the Beatles. Yeah. It's made as a way of them poking fun at themselves and mm-hmm. and their fame and how they've handled it to this point, yeah. which it should be noted um, in 1964, this movie's
1: released. When I'm 64. <laughs> Not a Beatles tune. Isn't it? Oh, is it? I think, I thought it was. Maybe it's just Paul McCartney. It, m- it might or be. Ringo Starr, I don't know. <laughs> you might be right. It's a great song. You may be right. I may be crazy. But it just might be a lunatic you're looking for. We're getting DMCA'd.
2: Sweet, I hope so. Uh, means we're close. That's how you get the popularity, baby. <laughs> that's right. Number six podcast in the Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, baby. So in nineteen sixty four, Jason, what I was trying to say is uh, that's the year that they go on Ed Sullivan.
1: Ah, yes, that's, really
2: big shoe. That's the that's the year they go on Ed Sullivan, they have sixty million people watching them.
1: Here's some little asshole boys from Liverpool, ladies and gentlemen, the fucking well, Beatles.
2: The Beatles, and you know, they play and people go nuts. A month after that happens, they start to write this movie. So Mm -hmm. a month after that happens, it hasn't really sunk in yet. The level of fame is – it's coming. It's slowly – it's building
1: up. It's clear, based on the screams at that Ed Sullivan performance, there is a a dedicated fan base already. And they start writing this movie, and then by the
2: time they're shooting this movie, I mean – I was listening I was listening to the commentary track, and they're you know they're talking about the production of the movie and stuff. They would have trouble going to some of these stations to shoot because I don't yeah. know if you know this, Jason, but they actually were given a train to shoot these scenes on,
1: okay, I figured as much because it was pretty clear from the way this was shot that it was shot on a real train, which I thought was really cool,
2: yeah, so they basically were given this train just to shoot the movie, uh and but any anytime they would go to a station, there would literally be hundreds of screaming girls there waiting for them yeah they, they all of the all of the crew in this commentary track are saying we have no idea what happened there must this is the earliest days of like leaking information yeah. because no one is announcing where we're going and, and they would literally have to do the same moves that they're dramatizing in the movie yeah. of like going into a car but then only going through it to get to another car yeah so I just think right off the bat that's interesting is that the Beatles are like kind of like this is how famous
1: we are right now yeah. now can I ask can I ask a uh, question and, yeah. and maybe if we have any any lady listeners in their 60s and 70s were beatles fans at that time and you went somewhere where you thought the beatles were going to be and you were screaming and chasing after them my question and and it's an honest question i i I take take this in completely good faith i just i just want to know what the fuck did you think was going to happen why were you there were you there just to see them were you there just to touch them To smell them? Were you going to chase them down as these girls were doing and have your way with them? What were you thinking?
2: I mean, I think it's just the idea of and thank you for plugging my other podcast, by the way. Yeah. Um, no but, problem. Happy. happy. But, but I think it's just, the, I think it's even just the idea of celebrity in general. It's like, we don't know what these people are going to do once they get to them. I mean, no. I'm assuming it's nothing violent or Were they going to tear them apart like in
1: fucking Dawn of the Dead or something? I don't like, think so. Like, I, like I, ripping their clothes so they can have a souvenir of that time that they <laughs> assaulted John Lennon? No, I think I think the
2: intention is that they just want to be seen. They want to talk to them because they've yeah. seen these people on TV. They have no idea, like you know what who they are. Yeah. I mean, just it just hits everyone like a shockwave. And,
1: and after seeing this movie, it's like yeah, I kind of want to talk to them too. They seem kind of fun. They all seem pretty charismatic and fun guys. And, and note, noting this right away
2: is that in this movie, they're very they're presented as very pure. They yes. don't, they, I don't believe we ever see them drinking. Although they, they make multiple attempts. They make multiple
1: attempts, but we never see them drinking. It's like they clear, but I like that bit. I like that. They clearly want a party. Yeah. And they're always going for the booze and the manager's like, no, no, you've got to do the thing. You've got to do this thing right now. And it, I mean, maybe that's a comment on the music business too, to some extent. Like, I mean, yeah, responsibilities. I, think, I think there's a lot of little, yeah. Uh, quips on that but they are so young that that's immediately what they want to do is
2: go just get drunk or at least go party <laughs> yeah. we'll have fun yeah. um, no drinking uh, no drugs obviously in this movie this is a G-rated well, we, movie we do have
1: a scene where John Lennon has a bottle of what I assume is Coca-Cola in his hand he's putting it up to his nostril like he's sniffing Coke <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you funny 20 year old you right. or however they were, old they were in this movie
2: 1964. He knows what's coming. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah. So there's not. But I mean, there's no drugs. There's not a lot. There's really not drinking except for attempts to do that. Yeah. Um, and even like even this is. It, their manager norm who i think is great in this movie mm. i love him in this movie he's seen drinking like milk at one point like he's literally buying like a bag of milk yeah. like everyone has seen it so sort of, like i mean this is a very like sanitized oh yeah g-rated absolutely. thing
1: I, I enjoy how the manager keeps getting mad at the guy that's with him because he's too tall stop being taller than me he says at one point well
2: <laughs> and, and the way they arrive at that by him saying like Come on be big about it and He's like well I can't help it if you're bigger than me why, why you why are you taller than me Stop it And then I love how their their little conflict this is between norm the manager and the road manager yeah uh, their little conflict ends when he kind of turns it around and says I'm not I don't have to stop being taller than you you have to stop being shorter than me yeah there you go man you stand up for yourself very tall <laughs> and I mean and also Jason, I think this is only one of two two musicals on this list two is oliver the other one oliver i think is the only other one so i
1: mean the musical genre in general like are you a fan do you yeah i I like musicals to some extent i'm not again not a nerd about musicals but i have ones i like you know chicago was big in 2002 and i was totally down with that uh i've been a fan of jesus christ superstar since high school because that's just one of the fucking best musicals ever made I was in *My Fair Lady*. I've probably mentioned it before. I love to. I played Colonel Pickering when I was in high school. I was the the fattest kid, and thus the only one that was qualified to play Colonel Pickering. So, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, we thank you for your service. And I had a great British accent. Mm. But yes, I do like musicals uh, uh, to some extent. But also, they're very cheesy sometimes. Yeah, and it can be often difficult to take seriously. Like I've never seen *West Side Story*, and I'd like to because I I know *West Side Story* is supposed to be great, and I'm sure it is. But still, there's just something about the idea of like these. (laughs) He's like 50s white guys that are all just, that are clearly like gay dancers in the 50s that are like, you know, we're the Jets and the Sharks and we're going to dance fight each other. There's something ridiculous about it, but at the same time, I'm sure it's fantastic.
2: Jason, before we get into too much of this, we need to talk about one of the, I think, I mean, the best character in the movie. Yeah. And I think it's Paul's grandfather. Yeah,
1: yeah, This weirdly, just like, I, I, okay, so the funny thing about this was when they initially introduced the character and he says it's his grandfather, he says it in a way that I thought he was just fucking with everybody i thought they were just like oh yeah it's me grandpa it's just some random guy that's in the in in the birth with them well let's listen to the and let's listen we're gonna
2: hear him talk like later on in the episode we'll play a clip of that later but we i do want to play the clip of them introducing him and the train because like you said it does sound like they're kind of paul mccartney's kind of fucking with the other other guys um and then we hear him talk a little bit
3: hey pardon me for asking but who's that little old man uh what little old man that little old man Oh, that one, that's my grandfather. Your grandfather? Yeah. That's not your grandfather. It is, you know. But I've seen your grandfather. He lives in your house. Oh, that's my other grandfather, but he's my grandfather as well. How do you reckon that one out? Well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? And it's my other one. We know that, but what's he doing here? Well, my mother thought the trip would do him good. How's that? He's nursing a broken heart. Ah, poor old thing. Hey, mister. Are you nursing a broken heart? He's a nice old man, isn't he? He's very clean. Hello, grandfather. Hello. He can talk, then, can he? Of course he can talk. He's a human being, isn't he? Well, if he's your grandfather, who knows? <laughs> That Ringo laugh is the same. That
1: Ringo laugh made my wife laugh so hard she didn't expect it. And uh. she just... <laughs> <laughs> By the way, my wife, uh, when I started this movie, Katrina, my wife, my wife, Katrina, she. Uh, so I, I pressed play and then I pressed pause because I was just getting the movie queued up to go. And when I pressed play, this movie starts immediately. There's well, no, there's no credits. There's no nothing. The first thing well, there's you, credits, but while you're watching, the it. first thing you hear is that famous chord at the beginning of Hard Days Night, where it's just like. <laughs> And uh, so I pressed play and then paused immediately and she heard that chord. She goes, oh, and she started singing and it's been a hard days. And I'm like, oh, you know that? She's like, yeah, it's like one of the most famous chords in history. Of course. So there you go. Oh, yeah.
2: It's, it's, I mean, arguably, I mean, and we've covered a lot of movies on this list where we're like, holy shit, this is the most well-known. I don't know if this is the most well-known movie in history. No. But I mean, people know of it. I think the Beatles are maybe the most well-known people in this list. Yeah, certainly. I mean, they have to be.
1: And, and even if you don't know this movie, you've probably watched a movie that at some point has been inspired by this movie. Just about any time a band has ever made a movie, there's probably some reference to Hard Day's Night I in mean, it somewhere.
2: Yeah, and I mean, in this one, they don't fight a Phantom of the Park, but I mean, what are you going to do?
1: Well, that's that was the evolution to the concept that Kiss brought to the table. Oh,
2: yes. Definitely, that movie was the evolution of this, <laughs> for sure. Um, <laughs> but I do want to talk about The Grandfather for a bit, because I have a theory, Jason. Yes. I have a theory about The Grandfather... I think he is either representing the devil, mm-hmm.
1: or at the very least, he is representing temptation. Okay, so now that you say that, you have to understand that he's a uh, an Irish guy, mm-hmm. and uh, an Irish Republican, clearly, from what you learn later on. He yeah. starts singing an Irish, like, independent song at some point. Uh, so you're saying the Irish are the devil. So just to our Irish listeners, you can catch Brendan on Twitter at BFI underscore pod, and let him know what you think of that comparison. Hey, I didn't say I wasn't a devil worshiper.
3: <gasps>
1: but, I, but I do think
2: that he represents like temptation. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you what do you see him doing? I mean, later in the movie he almost uh he coerces Ringo to go off on his own. Yes. But you know, go pursue the ladies, pursue the, the, the party. Get outside. Get outside, live a little, stop yeah. being the nice
4: guy. They're always picking on you. Why are you taking it in stride? Would you look at him? Sitting there with his hooter, scraping away at that boog. Well, what's the matter with that? Have you no natural resources of your own? Have they even robbed you of that? Well, you can learn from books. You can, can you? Taw, sheep's heads. You could learn more by getting out there and living. Out where? Any old where. But not her, little Richard. Oh, no. When you're not pumping them pagan skins, you're tormenting your eyes with that rubbish. Books are good. Parading's better. Parading? Parading the streets. Trailing your coat. Bowling along. Living. Well, I am living. You? Living? When was the last time you gave a girl a pink-edged daisy? When did you last embarrass a Sheila with your cool appraising stare? Bit old for that sort of chat, aren't you? Well, at least I've got a backlog of memories. All you've got is... Oh, stop picking on me as bad as the rest of them. Ah, so you are a man after all. What's that mean? Do you think I haven't noticed? Do you think I wasn't aware of the drift? And You poor, unfortunate scruff. They've driven you into books with our cruel, unnatural treatment, exploiting your good nature. I don't know. Ah, shall that lot's never happy unless they're jeering you. And where'd they be without the steady support of your drumbeat? That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, that's right. And what's it all come to in the end? Yeah, what's in it for me? A boog. Yeah, a bloomin' boog. When you could be out there betraying a rich American widow or sipping palm wine in Tahiti before you're too old like me. Yeah,
3: funny really, because I never thought, but. Being middle-aged and all takes up most of your time,
1: doesn't it? You're only right. Now, question, uh, just uh, for my benefit: Have any of the other guys done like acting roles where they've played characters other than themselves? I thought about that because I know it... Ringo has, because Ringo was the was the uh, first conductor on Shining Time Station, later to be replaced by, of all fucking people, George Carlin. And then, then Alec Baldwin do it too. I wouldn't be surprised. I think he does it in the movie. Okay, okay.
2: Um, I don't know. I feel like Paul McCartney must have done some acting where he didn't Was play he himself. Was he in a
1: western maybe something or something?
2: What I will say is that I mean, all I could think of when I was trying to figure that out, because I was actually trying to figure that out myself without looking it up. Yeah. Um, all I could think of was, like, that Mick Jagger has done that. Yes. That he's gone down that road. Because we, you know, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about that, because Gary will bring this up as yeah. well later. But um, there's always this Beatles-Rolling Stones comparison, and that's why I thought about Jagger doing acting. But I do want to just mention that, uh, a couple more things about the grandfather being sure. the, the symbol of temptation yes. or the devil, which I, of which I might worship. Yes. Yeah. Um, he also starts the argument between shakes and norm about you know he he starts that whole thing where it's like you know be big about it oh why are you taller than me stop being taller than me and they even say like paul mccartney even says like this is the first argument these two have ever had yeah. and grandfather was the one who started it so he's a he's more a shit disturber than anything but then at the very end of the movie he's arrested yes. so it's all and and he's with them but he's like he's got handcuffs on so it's almost like you know, it's almost like if he's representing like temptation or like their vices or whatever. It's like we got to put this. It's it's always there, but we got to keep it down. He's in
1: check finally. Yeah, like we, we got to go keep keep it do it the check. job.
2: I mean, maybe I'm looking too much into a hard day's night, <laughs> but I think I think th- th- my theory is that was an intentional choice,
1: and that's an interesting way to go about it to make it the grandfather character of all people. Yeah, you, know, you would think of in the movie to be that that temptation
2: there's this pushback in the movie uh of like the good old days throughout and we talk about it all the time where people are like oh i remember in my day i remember my day and this movie kind of pushes back on that there's even a scene where this guy comes into the, the 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 place in the train where the Beatles are staying yes and he says like you know i fought the war for you and it's like don't you oh sounds like you wish you should have lost or something yeah. like that like, <laughs> like, aren't you mad that this
1: is what you fought for that's a, and that in retrospect is a pretty cutting political comment <laughs> yeah no
2: i mean this is them saying like you know you don't have to take those comments guys like the youth of youth of uh of um of England like you don't have to just because someone says like oh I fought for you and you people were more respectful in my day it's like fuck all that
1: it, it's it's a fun contrast to think of these guys these youthful guys that are now the two that are still alive are in mm. their like late 70s but retained <laughs> much of that spirit oh, yeah, absolutely. like you'd still see Paul
2: McCartney doing Beatles songs I still see Dana Carvey doing Paul McCartney <laughs> and well <laughs> um but I just want to mention, um, because there's a running joke where they keep saying, you know, oh, he's very clean. Yeah. He's a very clean man. And I was I was kind of wondering that the whole time, like what they were kind of referencing. And apparently it's like a, a reference to a role that he played on a television show, this actor, Wilford Bramble. Um, he was on a, a British sitcom called Steptoe and Son.
1: Okay, which was the inspiration for Sanford and Son.
2: Oh, was it? Yes. Oh, actually. Yes, absolutely. Oh, okay. Awesome. Um I did not know that. So yeah. there you go. But the reoccurring joke on that—well, um, not the re- sorry But on that show, he was kind of seen as a dirty old man. Ah. So the fact that they keep saying, "Oh, he's very clean. He's very clean," was a knowing reference to yeah. this show that people in you know England would have known. Nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> we talk about the um, the script itself because it seems very, it almost seems ad libbed. But yeah. I can tell you. Um, there are, while well, there are like a few here and there, yeah. it's very
1: heavily scripted. Yeah. It, it, it reads like a, almost like, I, I don't want to compare it to this cause it's not the same, but it reads kind of like in the style of something like a Marx Brothers movie where it's got like kind of this rapid fire back and forth. These little, like little almost airplane esque jokes sometimes. I mean... They are all kind of acting like the Marx Brothers. Yeah, they're doing those like that rapid fire stuff, and I I enjoy it very much. That's part of why this movie's so fun.
2: And maybe that adds to its. Tr- and maybe that's why this movie works so well because I think if you're trying to get any kind of, and I don't mean this as a slight, hmm. but if you're trying to get any like kind of real dramatic acting yeah. performance out of these guys i don't think it works as well but where you're having them kind of play to their strengths be funny goofy lots of physical jokes like yeah. i think that's why it plays so well and they don't come off as like awkward or stilted yeah
1: i know nobody thought to do cocksucker blues uh with the beatles Did you know that movie no never heard of cocksucker blues no. cocksucker blues uh, uh pardon my french is a documentary about the rolling stones that was filmed i think in the 70s and it was it's a very very hardcore documentary about them they don't pull any punches like there's drug use and all this stuff going on Mm -hmm. and because of this uh, uh, rather rawness of this documentary it was never ever released the director though had come to an agreement and he can show it himself when he's there he can do screenings of this movie Hmm but it can't actually be released on videotape and DVD. But if you want to watch it, it is out there on the internet. I thought so. Oh yeah, yeah. it's uh, out there for sure. I'm going to shut that down. That sounds interesting. But yeah, but I, I, I would like to see that documentary about the Beatles, but also in the mid-60s, that was not the time that that sort of thing would be made either. I was going to say, yeah, they're definitely, I think at this
2: time, they're not really in that phase where they were, you know, experimenting with a lot of different drugs. And stuff. They were
1: getting there. They're they probably. Getting... I bet you they were smoking some weed at that point. They had to be. Just look at them. I mean, why wouldn't you? Yeah, why wouldn't you?
2: But the reason I bring that up, uh, the dialogue and stuff, because the screenplay was written by a man named Alan Owen. And Alan Owen was chosen because the Beatles were very familiar with a play he wrote called No Trams to Lime Street. Hmm. And uh, he basically, uh, they, they they said this guy had a real aptitude for Liverpudlian dialogue. Nice. So they really wanted to bring him on. And Paul McCartney said, you know, Alan hung around with us. And he was careful to try and put words in our mouths that he might have heard us speak. So I thought he did a very good script. Yeah. So he hung out. They tried the same thing, by the way. I know we mentioned. I mentioned it earlier with Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, yeah. where they tried to hang out with Kiss and stuff, and it just didn't work.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure Peter and Ace were probably too high to really get a sense of. And then Gene and Paul were Gene and Paul. Paul's probably pretty cool, but Gene's Gene. Gene Simmons is a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but every story I've heard has uh, reinforced that so Alan Owens only spent, like, a few
2: days with them. He wasn't there for a really long time. And uh, he basically – they basically told him their lives. They described it as this. This is the quote. A train and a room and a car and a room and a room and a room. <laughs> like, that was essentially their life. Yes. Um, and they basically had him write this script as if, like, the Beatles had kind of become prisoners of their own fame. Like you mentioned, um, at one point – um, they have to go to this, uh, They or they have to write all of their fans back. Yeah. Like he says, here's all your fan mail. Here's all the stuff for Ringo, which is yeah. somehow, which is in a, in a funny little joke, it's like
1: more than anyone else. I wonder though, if that plays into, do you remember the episode of the Simpsons where uh, Marge uh, meets Ringo? think so So in that episode she gets a letter from Ringo mm-hmm. and it turns out he's been answering his fan mail but he was behind so he had like right, seen her right. picture and he sends her the letter or whatever and I wonder if that's a reference to that it's maybe that he has the most fan mail
2: <laughs> I'm sure there's a direct reference to this movie somewhere in the substance oh,
1: there has obviously. to be there's... Well there has to be like I'm sure at some point there's been a, a band running around being yeah. chased by police yeah, exactly Well that's the thing yeah you see this image right at the top of the movie of the band
2: running from screaming girls you see them running from police yeah. while the music is playing. That is an image that I was very familiar with. And that's I had that's an iconic
1: that. image of 60s Beatles. Of Beatlemania. Yeah, of, of that, like at the, at the height of their suits and mop tops. This is what you think of when you think of the Beatles. Yeah. In terms of like their... Unless you think of them later in their trippy fucking Indian phase.
2: Yeah, when they stop touring later. Yeah. But like this is the image you, you know of like them, you know, uh, of, of the fandom of the Beatles. Yes. So yeah, so Ringo gets all these letters, um, and, and and yeah, they're told basically yeah, you have to sit here and answer all these answer all these, things, which we know doesn't happen. Yeah, um, but it is a funny thing. Like now, boys, yeah, no partying until you answer <laughs> all these nice people's letters. You gotta do your job, fellas. And of course, you know they make their way out. And going back to the whole idea where this movie is very pure. Uh, They go to a club, but they're just dancing. Ringo, by the way, his dancing is phenomenal. I love his (laughs) dancing. And everyone wants to dance with Ringo because he just comes across so, like, harmless.
1: And he just wants to have fun. And he never, he never comes across. Like, I feel like, okay. He makes up for his lack of uh, the same physical attractiveness as the rest of them with uh, his charisma. (laughs) I just
2: feel like Ringo has a different energy than the rest of the Beatles, especially John completely different
1: sides of the spectrum. I I wonder if I I think Ringo might've been a little bit older than them. He was a little And of course he was a late addition after Pete Best had departed from the band. Yes. But but yeah,
2: Ringo and John are like the opposite ends of the spectrum yeah. for me. Like Ringo is very like casual, laid back. He's fun. He's goofy. Where John is, a, he's got like a sort of a cold energy to him a
1: little bit. He's also doing bits. I love when he's in yeah. the tub and he's and he's as the sub and he starts singing the German national anthem. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and then then that whole—I mean—they have like a Marx Brothers bit or airplane bit there, where the manager goes in to to get him, and he's like, "Come on, John, get out of it!" And he like turns, he like takes the drain or the plug out of the drain, and then John's not there, and then John just pops up like he pops in, he's like, "What are
1: you doing? We gotta go!" Yeah. (laughs)
2: There is one line, though, we'll talk about John for a little bit. There's one line that does not play as well now is when the manager is getting frustrated with him. And he says, I'm going to murder Lennon.
1: <laughs> that was a little. I, I like the bit where they're at the where they're cutting between the, the interviewers. You have it. I do have it. Play the clap. So this is when they're talking to the press and uh, they
2: have their cheeky little answers to some of these questions. So, you know, standard, silly slash maybe dumb press press questions.
3: Tell me, uh, how did you find America? Turn left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. Oh. <laughs> have you any hobbies? No, actually, we're just good friends. Do you think these haircuts have come to stay? Well, this one has, you know. It's stuck on good and proper now. <laughs> it's frightfully nice. Uh, what would you call that uh, hairstyle you're wearing? Arthur. No, actually, we're just good friends. You're the brown all day. Eh? What do you call that collar? Oh, uh, a collar. Oh, do you often see your father? No, actually, we're just good friends. How do you l- like your girlfriends to dress? <laughs> <laughs>
2: My favorite joke in that whole bit is when they ask Paul McCartney, how, how do you see – have you have you seen your father? Are you seeing your father? No, we're just good friends. <laughs>
1: yeah, he keeps repeating that. That's very yeah. funny. <laughs> but yeah, you were talking about that scene. Yeah, um, I, I like that scene a lot. I just like – because, you know – and that was kind of what they were because they they were kind of flippant like that at various times. And, of course, we have that famous uh, John Lennon, you know, in the interview where he's talking about, yeah, there's more people that are listening to us than going to church. <laughs> And suddenly they were bigger than Jesus. And people
2: took that line in stride and had no issue with it Absolutely. whatsoever.
1: Everybody understood exactly what he meant.
2: <laughs> so the original titles for this movie, too, they were originally going to call it just simply The Beatles. Yeah. And then they were going to call it Beatlemania. Oh, I would have called
1: it Meet the Beatles.
2: <laughs> just like, just like the album, yeah. Meet the Beatles. Yeah. Meet yeah. the Feebles. Yeah, exactly. All puppets.
1: Yeah. Would you call that a retrofence? Like a reference to something that hasn't happened yet? Um, I would call prophecy. that... Prophecy. It's
2: a prophecy. It's a miracle. Oh. It's a miraculous prophecy. See, so when did it, combined our ideas, Jason. Yeah. Because that's what we do. You and I are a team. That's right. And I put our ideas together, so it's like teamwork.
1: And now we have uh, the basis of our religion that we can make all that money on. I mean that we can lead people to salvation with. Yeah, Christianity. Yeah, that's right.
2: <laughs> so they were originally going to call it one of those two titles, but they settled on "A Malaprop" by Ringo. Um, Ringo made all these like little malaprops, uh, yeah. basically these little terms that didn't really make any sense. Like They're, a hard day's night is one of his malaprops. The,
1: the sort of thing that Archie Bunker later made quite famous.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah. Little phrases that were like, well, that's cute. That doesn't make any sense. Or like Yogi Berra.
1: Cute. Yogi Bear is a good example. You know, like, Yogi it over Bear. until it's over. Yogi Bear. Yo- Yogi Berra.
2: Was Yogi Berra playing baseball and then stealing picnic baskets? Yes.
1: No, that was his track. That was career track. Yeah. <laughs> Th- things were rough after baseball. So he had to do what he had to do to survive.
2: but yeah but a hard day's night was one of ringo's little things it's been a bit of a hard day's night hasn't it yeah that's exactly what it was and then they kind of said they because they were they were all kind of thinking about the title what they wanted the title to be and the beatle and paul even said like that was the most fun we've ever had just thinking about what we wanted the title to be that sounds like john lennon (laughs) but he was uh and then yeah they just said like what was that silly thing ringo said the other day i was like hard day's night do it yeah
1: print cut that's a wrap. And also props to George. Let's see, We haven't talked about George enough, but George has a scene in the movie where he's uh yeah, you have the scene where he goes to give his, uh, I guess, his input on some fashion lines. Well, <laughs> George Harrison,
2: I like, by the way, I like how they all kind of equally have their moments. Yeah. Um, which is nice. Cause I, I, you know, you think going into it, you're like, Oh, you're always going to get Paul and John. Yeah. You might get something silly with Ringo, but I feel like George gets forgotten. George sometimes. is always the quiet
1: sensitive one. So yeah. you don't think of him as much.
2: I think George is just, but he doesn't go there thinking that's what it is. He's yeah. just kind of going through the studio. Yeah. And he ends up in this area where they're like test marketing or they're, they're testing, uh, clothing. Yeah. Like he's like basically George Harrison fashion critic. Yes. <laughs>
3: Simon, will this do? Oh, not bad, darling, not really bad. Turn around, you, baby. Oh, yes, he's a definite boss. He'll look good alongside Susan. All right, Sammy Jim, this is all going to be quite painless. Don't breathe on me, Adrian. I'm terribly sorry, but there seems to be some sort of misunderstanding. Oh, well, you can come off it with us. You don't have to do all the old adenoidal glottal stop and carry on for our benefit. I'm afraid I don't understand. Oh, my God, he's a natural. Well, I did tell them not to send us real ones. We ought to know by now, the phonies are much easier to handle. Still, he's a good type. We'd like you to give us your opinion on some clothes for teenagers. Oh, by all means, I'd be quite prepared for that eventuality. Well, not your real opinion, naturally. It'll be written out and you'll learn it. Can he read? Of course I can. I mean lines, Ducky. Can you handle lines? Well, I'll have a bash. Good. Give him whatever it is they drink. A kokerama? A guitar? Well, at least he's polite. Show him the shirts, Adrian. Now, you'll like these. You'll really dig them, that fab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seen dead in them. The dead grotty. Grotty? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. It's rather touching, really. Here's this kid trying to give me his utterly valueless opinion when I know for a fact that within a month he'll be suffering from a violent inferiority complex and loss of status because he isn't wearing one of these nasty things. Of course, they're grotty, you wretched knit. That's why they were designed, but that's what you'll want. I won't. You can be replaced, chicky baby. I don't care. And that pose is out too, Sonny Jim. The new thing is to care passionately and be right-wing. Anyway, if you don't cooperate, you won't meet Susan. And who's this Susan when she's at home? Only Susan can be our resident teenager. You'll have to love her. She's your symbol. Oh, you mean that posh bird who gets everything wrong? I beg your pardon? Oh, yeah, the lads frequently sit down the television and watch her for a giggle. In fact, once we all sat down, wrote these letters saying how gear she was and all that rubbish. She's a trendsetter. It's her profession. She's a drag, a well-known drag turn the sound down on her and say rude things get him out of here have i said something
1: you miss it's an interesting insight into how assholy the beatles are that they would sit around and watch her and complain about her and then write letters about how bad she was <laughs> but i think that's also them
2: kind of sticking it to like yeah.
1: what do you know about how like what's what clothing
2: would be cool for us to wear like how do you decide that yeah and that's George Harrison sticking it to them one one thing I that clip cut off just before a moment I kind of want to talk about because right after that after George leaves and says like oh you know this is not cool this is this fashion is terrible the guy looks at the calendar and he's like wait is it at a fashion and he quickly like glances (laughs) through the calendar he's like no 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 Okay, no, we're still good for a little while. was like, however, don't extend Susan's contract. Like he knows. <laughs> <laughs> like, they have a very specific calculation yeah. that within a few weeks, it's not going to be – they're going to need someone else.
1: I, I also laugh, and I love George's reading of the line when he goes, I don't care. <laughs> Just the way he says that, and it's like reflective. These guys aren't actors at this point. Like, they're clearly not actors, but – there's something so genuine about them in this movie because they are playing versions of themselves obviously and it comes across well and this is the thing
2: we talked about we talked about with non-actors a few times because we mm-hmm. talked about the killing fields we talked about fires were started yeah. we talked about like other things like this but at least these guys they have the charisma yeah. they have the stage presence they're musicians so they're mm-hmm. not completely oblivious no, to the world of acting certainly not um, this is not a 1517 to Paris situation no no,
1: these, these guys are having fun <laughs> clearly and it's showing and 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 Richard Lester's very clever in
2: surrounding these people or the Beatles with actors yeah. with very very talented yeah, comedic oh yeah. actors to play off of.
1: Yeah, the the grandfather there's a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. And, the grandfather.
2: I mean, I mean Norm, we yeah. talked a little bit about um about John Duncan uh playing the uh, road manager. Yeah. Um I can't even think of his name. Tall guy, you mean? <laughs> yeah, tall yeah, guy. Tall guy. Um, but yeah, they're they're basically surrounding them at all times with these with these heavyweight heavyweight actors, and I think um, the way it plays, the, the way it play, the reason it plays really well is because they're reacting off that, and any kind of acting that they do have to do is like just the natural chemistry between the boys, yeah, which they already have. They clearly. They say these things to each other all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's just they're kind of like it's a uh, film-friendly version of the ball-busting that they might do between each other. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, obviously, edit, uh censored a little bit. Yeah, no,
1: and that's the thing. I want to see the movie of them just acting as they were to hear the kind of shit that they would talk about.
2: Well, you can uh, listen to the Paul McCartney Howard Stern interview because he oh. drops a few f-bombs on that one. Uh,
1: Ooh, by the way, I, he- I did it hear it. Really
2: that crude? Hearing Paul McCartney say "fuck" was very that's fucking up- crazy. I don't know why he's suddenly Scottish. but Very unnerving to yeah. hear that. <laughs> um, so this movie was... For, so I want to mention actually John Junkin playing that character because he had based the character, or he was told that the character was based on the Beatles' real-life road manager, a guy named Mal Evans. Mm. And so he asked... Them, He asked George Harrison, he said, well, what is Mal Evans like? Like, what do I base it on? I don't know the guy. Like, what's a good baseline to go off? And George Harrison's response was, well, let's put it this way. Mal is in charge of our instruments. And uh, we just came back from New York. And uh, the instruments just turned up in Iceland. Uh that was basically his <laughs> summation of Mal Evans.
1: Wow. Ouch. Um,
2: ouch from the quiet guy. Ouch. Yeah. George always struck me as like the polite one. Yes. By the way. Absolutely.
1: Uh, very <laughs> spiritual beetle. Oh, yes.
2: But, yeah, and and this whole movie was done in such a way that it was, like, very, very tight. The director said it came under budget because I didn't even know how much money we had to work with. I just did the movie. (laughs) And and thankfully it wasn't as much as they gave us. Nice. (laughs) Um, The editor was only able to do one cut of this movie. So normally, you know, you have a guy, he's doing the rough cut. Yeah. He's doing the final cut, the fine cut. And, and doing tweaking and tweaking whatever and here and there. Really only had enough time to do one cut. So this guy. And that's guy,
1: extra impressive because this movie is pretty impressively edited.
2: Right? Yeah. And innovative. Yeah. Like just ahead of its time in yeah. so many ways. Like you mentioned that press scene where they're all talking to the interviewers. Yeah. They shot two hours of that and the editor cut that down to whatever know, that was, like 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Like, but yeah, it's like a two minute scene yeah. maybe total. Um,. And, you know, obviously he had, like, associate editors and stuff, yeah. but they only had one cut to do. His name was John Jimson, by the way. I just want to mention
1: his name because he did a great job. Well, and then you even figure in the musical sequences, too, like when they're, uh, when they're uh, dancing in the field and stuff, and there's, like, a helicopter camera that's filming them. And that, and that is done in such a unique way mm. because we have, like, I mean,
2: in this movie we have a lot of, like, shaky cam. A lot of handheld. Handheld yeah, cam. Yeah. Which is weird for the time. Yeah, very abnormal for the time. And also, like, but then you get like a lot of shots, like you said, helicopter shots. Yeah. So you get a lot of shots, like massive long shots where you're like, well, that's not normally how things like this are shot. Yeah. And it's, I'm wondering if it's like a mixture of, you know, improvising because that's what we got. Hmm. Um, and like, you know what? Let's just try it this way. Yeah. And we don't have time to try it a million different ways. Let's try
1: this, and if it doesn't work, fuck it. And I'm sure they knew that at the end of the day, if they could make a film that uh, that had Beatles music in it and, and made the Beatles likable in the movie, that they would have a hit regardless. Like, yeah. it didn't need to be anything dense or complex, and it's not. And it's not, but it works so yeah, well for what it is. Exactly. Like, it, it's just the, it's the best example of what this could possibly be. It's a great primer for somebody that maybe isn't a fan. Like I mean, obviously the Beatles were huge when this movie came out, but like, oh, yeah. if you didn't really know who the Beatles were this was a great introduction to them you heard a lot of their good music you got to see their personalities you got to know exactly like who John who George who Paul who Ringo was
2: and I can even see someone who's like you know even a casual fan or maybe someone who's not even really that big of a fan that would just enjoy this as a movie yeah
1: it's just it's It's, a fun time
2: yeah I do like that. There's like that. They had one bit that was very absurd. Mm. That would never like. There was only one bit I found that really went outside. Like the the reality is when they're on the train and they're they're taunting that guy who says like, "You know, I fought the war for yeah. you." Um, one of the shots is they're outside the train in the window, mm. like as the train is going, and they're like, uh, "Sir, can you get our ball? It's landed it in your yard." And it's like, "Oh, <laughs> well, they're running outside the train while the train is yeah. going." <laughs> it's like it doesn't make any sense. That's the one bit. Um, I, I actually was hoping to see more of that, but yeah. I like that. It was like an airplane bit. Yeah,
1: like a weird cartoonish bit in the middle of this yeah. thing. I mean, this movie's a little cartoony, anyways, but uh, not quite. Uh, other than that scene, not that cartoony.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um but i i mean i have a lot of like random stuff here that i wrote down so let's get into the bits
1: and bobs bits and of this bobs. thing. Well, let's go through my notes and see what i got to say that i haven't said already uh yeah why are they running couldn't they afford a taxi to the train why do they have to run to the train i mean they every time they try to get into a taxi the thing will probably get overturned That's true or or they could get
2: like a truck or something to just jump in the back of um oh i have a question for you actually sure. Ringo, I mean, and again, you'll hear this later, you'll hear Gary talk about this later, but I want to get your opinion as well. Uh, Ringo seems to be the put-upon Beatle right away, like from
1: the get-go. He's always the comic relief. And and to this day, that's kind of his reputation in the Beatles. It's like, there's everybody and then there's Ringo. It's like, oh, look, everybody did music and then they let Ringo sing uh, uh, Under the Sea. Not Under the Sea, (laughs) uh, Octopus's Garden. Under the Sea, you're right. He plays (laughs)
2: Smash (laughs) and the Crab.
1: Under the sea.
2: What I really like, too, is that his reputation's kind of grown over the years as oh, well. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's even some people now who will just be like, oh, yeah, Ringo is my favorite. He's well, fun.
1: for a period in his life there, Justin was listening to a lot of... Uh, uh ringo stars all-star band albums which is actually pretty good stuff you know it yeah. has like joe walsh and other famous rock stars they get together with ringo and sing music it's pretty cool yeah yeah and uh, of course i i know ringo from watching a lot of shining time station growing up as i mentioned earlier between him and george like that was a big part of my childhood
2: i mean ringo was great like there's the, there's the joke about ringo being like oh and ringo yeah. it's just it's a Not silly, silly. <laughs> thing that the beatles did themselves yeah, it was
1: it was the character that he played Right, like it's, <laughs> he was no less a member of the band than any other of them. Oh, absolutely. So back to the bits. Yeah. Uh, I liked that There was a neat shot in when they were in the train initially where you can see Paul in the mirror that's behind uh, the boys. Like uh, It's like a mirror above them in the train, and he's talking about his grandfather, and you can see him reflecting in it. It's, it's only one shot, but it's just a neat little uh, use of the mirror. I like that. I like that it was on a real train, as I said earlier.
2: I like that the grandfather, when he takes uh, Ringo's invite, because Ringo gets when he gets all his mail, Ringo gets an invite to go to this gambling club. Yes. <laughs> and the grandfather is uh, the whole time berating him for doing that while he's putting the invite in his coat pocket, steals... Ringo's suit. Sta- no, he steals a butler's suit. Oh, butler's suit. <laughs> because later they find the butler in their closet, right. and they even say, like... Did you put a man in here?
1: Oh, that's why he looks so much like the guy. I got it.
2: Yeah. Up. You put a man in here? Well, somebody did. <laughs> yeah. and then, But then when he goes to the gambling club, by the way, I did the math um, because they get the bill and they're like, 180 guineas, yeah. that today would amount to $2,064. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. No wonder they're uh, pissed off. <laughs> that's just in drinks. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> and he also, the grandfather also does a move that I really appreciated is that he goes over and pretends to be, because he had out of money. Yeah. So he goes over to a table and pretends to be the waiter, and and like delivers I think like their their bill or something or the yeah. na- or napkin or something, and the guy tips him, and then he quickly walks back over and puts the tip on the counter. He's like, bingo! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he
1: doesn't know how to play, <laughs> asshole. Man. Oh,
2: that's so good. By the way, the Beatles press scene that feels still relevant to today because i feel like that's something that not so much in the last couple of years but i feel like that's something that jennifer lawrence did yeah, uh, yeah, a, oh, lot, yeah a lot yeah. where they would ask her questions like you know i mean you had that thing where she tripped at the oscars and someone would someone said like you know um what did you what did, what did what were you thinking when that happened and she's like um
1: yikes i'm falling <laughs> <laughs> With that, And that comes from, like, much like them, where they're kind of being accosted by these reporters over the course of an evening. I mean, in, in that situation, you know, the way they do the interviews, or at least they were up until the pandemic, was they sit them down in a room with a poster behind them, and they just have a parade of journalists come in, sit down, get their five or ten minutes of footage with them, and then move on. So I imagine, especially if you're in late in the day, that's uh, – you're going to have some more fun with your answers at that point. Hey, I get tired, tired of it. Man, <laughs> I can just imagine how – much of a slog that oh, is. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I get it. You know, I'm not going to feel too sad for a celebrity that makes $20 million for doing a movie, but at the same time, it's a lot of work. I mean, I mean they, they do earn some of that money.
2: Yeah. I was going to say $20 million, they don't get paid specifically for that. Yeah, but that's um, part of the deal. That's part of the deal. Yeah, for yeah. sure. No, I'm not saying they don't make enough money to do yeah. it. I'm just saying, either way. But it's like,
1: regardless of the amount of money you make, that's a long, stressful day, I imagine.
2: Yeah, either yeah. way, I I, I kind of see, you know, when you see those interviews where someone comes off a little crass or like, you know, a little. They they don't seem like they're giving it their all. I'm like, you got to think about it. This
1: might be our six of eight. Yes. Like, this might be yeah, exactly. far into this um, marathon. So, I want to know uh, so that old man, or the, the the guy that they have the kind of like the classic, or not the age conflict with, like, he's sitting in their berth. Did they not get a private berth? You would think that the Beatles in 1964 could afford a private berth and not have random old men walking into their fucking cabin to sit down with them. I mean,. Kind of bullshit I, is that? I,
2: I, I mean, and, and this is a
1: country with the class system, Brendan. They know how to divide people.
2: I mean, this is early on. Keep in
1: mind. Yeah, unless they said like, oh, let the let the come in, and then we'll fuck with them.
2: Oh, um, I, I love the. Uh, I, I I'm just adding to your bits and bobs yes. here. Um, I love this bit where uh, the grandfather sees a, a man named Leslie Jackson. He's like this magician. yeah. And he's <laughs> Leslie Jackson and his amazing ten doves. And he kind of <laughs> smacks his arm and says, like, oh, I'm a great fan of yours. And the joke, the way the bit is done is, like, you slowly see, like, feathers fall from his arm. <laughs> and he slowly crosses out ten and writes <laughs> nine. nine doves.
1: <laughs> that's like – and that's a th- that's a joke – that's the, a style Again, that's of like joke. A, that's like a cartoonish, old school, like vaudeville kind of joke. But I remember seeing those jokes in Superman 3 and <laughs> thinking like, this doesn't work at all. But I see
2: it in this and I'm like, that's great. So that's a Richard Lester thing. That's, that's a, definitely he, he a Richard. That. 100%. <laughs> uh,
1: let's see. John was having real fun in the tub. He sang the German national anthem with the submarine. That was good stuff. And like, that was the thing is that he was of an age that would have grown up like playing World War II because it had just happened.
2: I do like the uh, the sequence in the cafe. We listened earlier where the grandfather convinces Ringo to go off on his own, where we see a quick shot of a man who, uh, it's like a production studio, right? Yeah. So you see a man with like a fake sling with like a ca- uh, blood stain, and he's like putting ketchup on his food, and then he stops for a second and adds a little bit to
1: his wound. <laughs> <laughs> also, when Ringo walks out of the cafe, does he affect a Nazi salute? He kind of clicks his heels together and sticks his arm out. I don't think so. I feel like
2: that's not intentional. If That's how it came across. There is a casual racist comment in this movie about Ringo being a troublesome little aborigine.
1: Shit. Yeah. Also, by the way, I, did you see any people of color in this movie whatsoever in any scene, even in the background? beetles dude i know but i just want to mention that because i always point out when uh, people of color are represented i should also point out when they're uh, not and yeah i don't think there's a single non-white face in this movie <laughs> no i don't think so <laughs> that's britain for the time but at least there were no white faces pretended to be not white that's faces. also true so they got that going for them um so i have a little bit of a bone to pick with this movie because now i blame it for something One thing I hate, and maybe I'm wrong, and if there's a reason that is legit for this and I just don't know it, please, folks, let me know, at BFI underscore pod, at Jason D. McLeod. You'll get it all at the end. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. That's right. Um, But at one point, they asked for a signature, and he says, put your John Henry on here. And I fucking hate when people say that, because John Henry was a steel-driving man. John Hancock was the guy that signed the Declaration of Independence really big, and his name became synonymous with signatures. So unless there's a reason that John Henry signed something one time that I don't know about, or why you would say John Henry, it pisses me off when people fuck that up. and do I believe, and, and now I'm believing that maybe this movie is responsible for it. I've heard it before though. Yeah, no cuz people say it because no, they're wrong. No,
2: but not from people. I've heard it in a movie before. I'm, i swear I've heard it before mm. in a movie. But I like I obviously yeah, I know it's John Hancock, but I've definitely heard put your John Henry here. I now, wonder maybe if there's a different John Henry cuz like I'm thinking of John Henry the steel driving man. Maybe that famous song. Maybe that's like a British slang. Maybe. maybe. Hey, listeners i know i know for a fact jason because we've gotten comments we've gone back and forth with some of these some of these people yeah (laughs) some of them are actually british (laughs) yeah some of them are british some of you guys out there you guys and gals are british so let us know put your john henry on that is that an alternative to like john hancock is that a thing maybe
1: john hancock is just the thing over here because it's you know it's an american thing right so that might be it
2: because i mean this is a british film
1: one thousand percent
2: absolutely yeah
1: yeah, look at that fucking sweater again. That fucking mohair sweater that is looks so uncomfortable. By the by the TV director? Yeah, and hot. Like you're on a TV set with these hot ass lights and you're wearing this fucking huge mohair sweater. Did somebody did the did the person that did the dressing on set hate this actor that he made him wear this fucking mohair sweater? Come on. Unless somebody unless like they knew a director that did and that was a comment I, on I
2: it. I mean, yeah, I feel like it's the it's the whole like I feel like it's supposed to be, like, uh, ridiculous. You know, it's like when you see representation of uh, of a director wearing, like, a, a little weird scarf or something. Like, it's, yeah. I think it's meant to be, like, silly.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, Pompous. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I noted to myself here about the pacing and editing of this film being mm. quite fast and, and revolutionary for the time. Um, and being the clearly like the early progenitor of the music video of what would later become, you know, not, not so much nowadays, but like in the nineties and early two thousands, the music video was the thing that I mean sold the '80s music and the eighties too, for yeah. sure. Um, and actually it was funny because a lot of those sequences where it's a music video essentially, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the song. Which we've seen plenty of times. Where, I mean, you know, you got some music videos like uh, like Meatloaf. Uh, I would do anything for love. Like that is clearly dramatizing the song to some extent. But is there you, is there anal sex in it? I hope so. Okay, uh, I haven't seen it in a while, but I was a kid, so who knows? But like then you but then you see music videos where they literally have nothing to do with it because they they weren't filmed to. Like there's the famous video for the. You ever see the video for uh, the Atari's cover? Is it the Atari's or the? Whoever did the cover of um, uh, Boys of Summer by Don Henley. No. Anyways, they they do this video, which apparently was footage from another video that they didn't end up making. And they just threw it together. And that's the video. And the Beatles kind of pioneered that because they're like singing like, you know, one of their songs about love or whatever. But they're just like running around a park. So who gives a shit? It's great. It works.
2: I, I think we should also mention that Ringo sequence because it is pretty funny how he's like going around and uh, – It's basically their statement on, like, you know, if we could just be ourselves Mm. and have fun, like... I don't care if someone rejects us because he goes up to a woman and she's like, ew, get away from me and he's kind of like, yeah, alright, all right. like he likes it, like he's just, hes well, kind and of... also
1: by that point Ringo was well known enough that he could probably go up to anybody who knew who he was and they would just you know, fall on his feet, so to get rejected yeah. by a woman he's like, alright, okay, yeah, I'm like know, that was an
2: honest reaction. I mean, he goes to a bar and there's a great physical comedy great physical comedy bits where he like puts his drink down and they're playing this little game and the, 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 raw, the stone comes around on a string and breaks yeah. his glass and all this stuff he's told to leave and he throws a dart it almost hits a parrot just like a normal night at the pub (laughs) it's like it's it's so funny because it's like he's clearly liking the fact that he's not being treated like Ringo Starr but you can you can tell also that he's not tuned into this
1: world yeah no not at all (laughs) uh I like the scene where George is walking with a newspaper because it reminds me of walking with a phone today where he's not sort of kind of paying attention and can run into people it's just like walking with the phone in the old days but it's also a lot harder with the newspaper because they're very big those it's old broadsheets the
2: 1964 version of browsing your phone
1: absolutely uh Scroll i already said this was like a marx brothers light movie um the tall guy eventually gets into it doing bits too with them he like gets more comfortable with them over the course of the movie and he's like having fun by the end of it he puts the wig on at one point he's like that oh take that wig off it does you right <laughs> they also
2: uh practice shaving with him in a mirror
1: yeah, it was a weird thing, but I guess he'd never, uh, his dad was an electrician, so I assume that means he'd only ever used an electric shaver. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mentioned that for me, uh, a casual fan of the Beatles, there's some deep cuts in this picture, but to be fair, in 1964, it was still, I think, before the halfway point of their career, so they I mean, had so much music.
2: We have A Hard Day's Night, we have Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah, uh, obviously those big ones. Those are the two big ones that but I- But there's other
1: ones in there that I don't personally recognize, but my wife did and was singing along to. Mm-hmm. Uh, There was one piece of what I feel like must have been library music because it it was a version of a song that I've heard on Freakazoid. When, when, when Ringo's like walking through the town and the girls kind of notice him and he goes into the store and changes his uh, outfit. It's like this. Yeah, it's this piece of, it feels like library music, but there's also like a jazzy version of um, Hard Day's Night at one point. Uh, Which is kind of cool. I also want to point out the scene where Ringo tries to take a selfie in the 60s where he props the uh, camera up on a rock and has the remote and it just it, it just falls in the water. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And then, and then we see a bit where he's walking through the, like a construction site, and there's a pretty lady there, and there's like puddles, so he takes off his long coat and throws it down for her, and he does that twice, and then the third time he throws it down, and she falls into a hole. And then he just kind of yeah. casually walks away. Yeah, he just fucking walks off before he's immediately arrested by the police. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and so, I mean, the crux of the movie is, I mean, essentially the plot of this movie is they're trying to get to a recording in time. They lose Ringo, and then they have to yeah. go find Ringo. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And so uh, last thing I'll note, uh, the music documentaries and music mockumentaries, especially um, even Spinal Tap, owe a lot to this. Spinal Tap specifically was at the end when they were when they were filming them on stage singing in that white background and singing. Their songs reminded me that clearly must have inspired uh, the kind of the top of the pops thing that you see on in the Spinal Tap where there is still the Thamesmen and they're singing like uh, 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 uh Give me some money. That's the song they're singing. Yeah. yeah, and it's very clearly inspired by the Beatles being on a show like that. Oh, I would think. And that, they have a and they have a helicopter. They do have a helicopter.
2: I would think that Ro, uh, I was going to say Rob Reiner, but Christopher, no, Rob Reiner directed. Rob Reiner Spinal directed Tab. Spinal. Tap. I would
1: yeah. I would think that Rob Reiner definitely turned to this for inspiration. Oh yeah, no, no 100%. question, no question. <laughs> and playing on those conventions to make the genius that is Spinal Tap.
2: Okay, Jason. Well,
1: yeah. this might surprise you, but this movie actually does go to the
2: Oscars. And Jason's doing his uh, Marlon Brando
1: visual uh, impression for me. I'm, I'm going to do my impression of a Marlon Brando smiling at the end of uh, the, uh, the score.
2: Okay, good, because I'll, now I'll have to add it in later. It looks like a CG. Well, you have to do it with CG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but this movie does go to the Oscars. It is nominated for two Academy Awards.
1: What? Best soundtrack, I bet.
2: Well, best score, yes. And it is one, which I think is funny because you mentioned this movie earlier. It is actually won that year by My Fair Lady.
1: Nice. (laughs) Fuck you, Beatles. That's right. Look at her, a prisoner of the gutters, condemned by every syllable she utters. By right, she should be taken out and hung for the cold-blooded murder of the English tongue. Gary,
2: remember, it's Jason D. (laughs) McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Hey, that's a great musical, My Fair Lady. Watch it. I mean... It's kind of crazy, though, in retrospect to think that this loses Best Original Score. Yeah, it,
1: it, is, it is funny to think that to this musical that was a musical version of a play by a man that probably would have murdered everybody involved with the musical uh, if he'd had the chance. And the
2: other thing it is nominated for, and this might blow your mind more, is Best Original Screenplay,
1: Huh.
2: which I think, honestly, I'm I'm in on that yeah. because I think the screenplay is great, and yeah. I think the way they've written these lines so that the Beatles can perform them as well as they do really speaks to the writing it shows their writing
1: writing to the strengths of their actors
2: and it is won by a film that year the, the film that wins best original screenplay is Body. of course, no it's a movie oh, come on jason it's a movie <laughs> we both know and love we've talked about so many times you and i talk about casually when we're not even doing the podcast yeah sure what was it's it? of course
1: the film called father goose oh father goose yeah with uh, you know uh ah father goose carrie grant 1964 yeah i love that movie Woohoo boy that's a researchless answer right there yes yeah, sir and did i just knew that off the top of the old dome didn't have to ask siri anything maybe that carrie grant's in it i might watch it now ah yes i'm carrie grant and i'm Pink father goose speaking of carrie
2: grant did ah. you know that they wanted to dub this movie with mid-Atlantic accents. With Car- Cary Grant? With mid-Atlantic accents. Oh, God. Can you imagine? Paul McCartney basically said to well, that. i Paul McCartney of the Beatles, see? <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> no, Paul McCartney basically said to that, look. If we can understand, and this is—he does drop an F bomb here. If we can understand a fucking cowboy
1: talking Texan, yeah, they can understand us talking Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, and, and as far as English accents go, that's a pretty easy one to understand. It's, this is not fucking Kess. Yeah, exactly. These, these boys aren't from Yorkshire; they're from Liverpool. You're fine. But I get just it. it It's crazy to think of that we almost didn't hear the Beatles' voices in this. See, I'll tell you why the Beatles had so much success in America, Brendan. And this is a historical fact. So during the U.S. Civil War, the Confederate States of America, in their quest to maintain slavery, uh, uh, were fighting the United States. And they got ships made in Liverpool. So there was some interaction there. So I bet you the southern United States saw this movie and was like, well, we understand what they're saying because they built ships for us in the Civil War.
2: Wow, Jason, you understand the Beatles fandom more than anybody I've ever spoken to.
1: Now, I'm not saying the Beatles support slavery. In fact, I would be willing to go go so far as to say they probably oppose it.
2: (laughs) don't know if there is ever a major statement to the fact. I don't know if they've
1: ever said it on record, but I would be willing to bet the firm that they uh, are opposed to slavery. But hey, you know what? They are
2: um, one British band that didn't play in apartheid South Africa. So there you go.
1: Hey, good
2: job. Stay out of Sun City. Yeah no Queens here um that sounds like
4: sounds like that a homophobic like comment a, yeah, exactly. yeah, I just I know. no no Queen, Queens are
2: always welcome Queen was the band that played in apartheid South Africa they did they did
1: wow that oh I'm sad to hear that
2: that's not in Bohemian Rhapsody now I know Freddie would probably have been like well she did just you she did
4: was to sure. yeah, let's just
1: make off, make sure to piss off everyone today yeah. no, no, don't get me wrong I love Queen Queen's one of my favorite bands Brendan don't you know Okay, listen. I'm almost done. All right.
2: (laughs) Uh, So it doesn't win either of those awards, obviously, but it does go to the BAFTAs, and it also doesn't win, but it is nominated for most promising newcomer. Uh, You know, it's a four way tie. They say the Beatles, but that year it's actually won by Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins. Huh. Bitch. (laughs) Wow. I don't know. That's mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Julie Andrews has that reputation, just being an awful person. No,
1: of course not. I'm gonna say that she's like the yeah. Okay, I see your humor.
2: I see your humor. I don't laugh, but I see it. I see your humor, and I raise you a joke. (laughs) Reviews of this movie were mostly positive. Uh, Andrew Saris of the Village Voice said, "This is the Citizen Kane of jukebox
1: musicals." Oh, okay, yeah. Um, Well, but no, but but okay. Fucking back up a sec. This isn't a fucking jukebox musical. In my mind, a jukebox musical is songs from a wide variety of bands that are uh, uh, relevant to a given era or or you know some theme. This is just Beatles. Jason, stop. How many fucking jukeboxes, Brandon, do you know that just have Beatles music? Jason, I direct you first of all to Beatles
2: rock band, The Jukebox. And also, stop stabbing me. I am not Andrew Saris. Take the knife out. Thank you. Are you all right? I'm glad you were eating pudding at the same time. (laughs)
1: Well, you know, it's... It's chocolate. It's good.
2: <laughs> but yeah, that's what Andrew Serra said. Anyway, he liked it. Um, Time magazine called the movie one of the smoothest, freshest, funniest films ever made for purposes of exploitation.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: Uh, Roger Ebert described the movie as one of the great life-affirming landmarks of the, of the movies.
1: Strong words from uh, Bobby E. <laughs> His name's <are> Robert Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good point, good point. Fair enough. I was wrong. Ro- R- Raji? Raj. What was short for Roger? Rogie? Raj- Bodgie? Bodgie, Bodgie. Oh, Bodgie Ber- Eves. Bodgie That's my Pete Holmes take on that. Bodgie Eves. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so,
2: in 2004, Total Film Magazine named a hard day's night the 42nd greatest British film of all time. Huh. Uh, and, um... The New York Times, we talk about this critic a lot. Bosley Crother. Yeah. Bosley Crother said that the movie was a subtle satire on Beatlemania and the Beatles themselves. He said the Beatles are portrayed as likable young lads who are constantly amazed at the attention they receive and who want nothing more than a little peace and quiet. However, they deal with screaming crowds, journalists who ask nonsensical questions, and authority figures who constantly look, look down upon them. And he notes, in fact, their biggest problem is the
1: grandfather. He yeah. was, of course, a guy who was older than them. The um, only thing that would merely make this movie better is if we had scenes where they were fucking their fans, because that probably happened.
2: Anyway, <laughs> um, this is an interesting reviewer. Uh, the review, the New Yorker, New Yorker critic Brendan Gill, not me, it's not oh. me, uh, said. Though I don't pretend to understand what makes these four. Rather odd-looking boys so fascinating to so many million scores of people. I admit that I feel a certain mindless joy stealing over me as they caper about uttering
1: sounds. That is a (laughs) fucking, the most backhanded (laughs) review these boys, they, they can make sounds with their mouths. Good for them. That is such a backhanded positive <laughs> review more than I've ever heard. That is like Rick's Reed levels of, of sass. It's funny to think that there was a time when there was like an old backlash against the Beatles. And I mean, and then that's not crazy because we know how, we know how pop culture works. You and I have lived through 30 plus years of it. So we talked, I mean, we talked about Sean Connery in Boatfinger. Yeah, yeah. We yeah talked Sean to... Connery makes that reference about them. There was, there was a whole like novelty song called, I hate the Beatles. I think Alan King was behind like... I mean, anything, you can argue that anything that gets to that level of popularity
2: is going to have, yeah. you're going to have the backlash. It's going to
1: have the backlash. It's going to have the old people making fun of them. You it can talk about, you
2: can talk about things to a lesser extent. Like, I mean, you get movies that get, when it comes to Oscar season, they get all this buildup. Like I remember one, the year that La La Land was out, yeah. people fucking loved it. And then it's, and then after a month, people hated La La Land. No reason to just started like pouncing on it because it was getting all this exposure um same thing with like uh i think people were mad that it took exposure from a movie that was about a much more serious subject but i don't think it did i think it just came out and got like a lot of people that were kind of loving it and then all of a sudden people were hating it and then it lost you know the whole best picture you know why it is
1: because they hate white people hey i got a speech i gotta give I, i'm not saying i'm not saying
2: no you don't no you fucking don't i'm not saying moonlight didn't deserve to win i love mm. moonlight but i also love la la land i mm. think that's a great movie and i think it's a wonderful tribute to musicals of yesterday
1: i've not seen either of them so i
2: can't say shit but all i'm saying is that people get down on things very quickly mm. as soon as
1: they're popular mm. i mean it's yeah. always been the way and as we can tell well, it, it it you know what it is? It is it, you have something. It's like a cycle, and I, I I'm sure somebody has codified this somewhere But it's basically like you have a thing, right? Hammurabi's codified. So you have a thing. Let's let's use Wayne's World as a good example. You have a thing, right? You have Wayne's World. It comes out. Um, you have those sketches, right? So early on, people are watching the sketches. It's real funny. People like it. it starts to get some buzz. It gets real popular. That becomes a big thing on SNL. They make a movie out of it. It gets super popular. It's it's in the zeitgeist. People are saying swing all over the place. Yeah. But then, it, but then that backlash starts to creep in because it's very popular. There's People like, oh yeah, fuck Wayne's World, and then and then they make fun of all the lines. It and then eventually you get to a point where if you say Schwing or or any of the funny lines in that movie, that it's like, oh man, like come to modern times. But then it goes a little bit longer, and then it becomes ironic to say it. Yeah. And then everybody says it ironically, like like we did with Borat and my wife. And then you get to a point after that where it is legitimate funny again, and it takes its place. In the pantheon of comedies, it's been through the cycle. It's been through the promise, uh, the process, and now Wayne's World is one of the great comedies of our age.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I feel like you know another example I think of is Animal House. Yes, because that's a movie that was loved when it came out. Mm-hmm. Years later, people are like, fuck Animal House. That's a that's a cruel movie. And I think <laughs> it is we're, a cruel we're
1: movie. kind of still at that stage right yeah. now of people thinking like Animal House. Uh, well, I, I feel like in recent times, it is allowed for a reevaluation of it. I mean, they they, they try to break into a girl's uh, fucking dorm on a panty raid.
2: And you know what? If it never turns around for Revenge of the Nerds, I'm fine with it. Because I don't think it will. There is a straight up rape scene well, yeah, in that there's movie. A, yeah,
1: well, yeah, she gets fucked by a guy pretending to be somebody else.
2: But anyway, that's not that's nothing to do with the Hard Day's we'll, we'll
1: save that for our uh, side podcast, uh, <laughs> movies that don't make any sense anymore. <laughs>
2: movies that don't age well, because yeah. that will last That'd forever. That'd be a great podcast,
1: yeah. And then in 10
2: years, when we started, 10 years after we started, we could talk about the movies that came out 10 years before and how they don't age well. Yeah,
3: exactly. So Jason, and then we'll do
1: the podcast about how they've been <laughs> achieved their pantheon, uh, their place in the pantheon. Right. Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: I never thought Eon Flux would find its place in history. And yet it's the most important movie ever made. <laughs> Eon Flux uh uh fucking uh, uh ishtar and uh water right and let's not forget the postman the postman which is actually quite relevant today jason yeah that takes place in 2013 though so hard days night i have hard to ask you hard days night so i have to ask you um hard days night what do you think great loved it had a great time watching it it was like you said very breezy very easy to watch i knew a lot of the songs i've said this before about other movies but like we've had some movies we've watched that are you know they're good but they're a slog mm-hmm. like it takes some real like Uh, preparation and kind of emotional centering to watch. Hard Day's Night is not that. Hard Day's Night from literally millisecond one is a movie that's going and you enjoy it the whole way through. So you can't go wrong with this thing. Mm -hmm. Show it to your grandpa. He'll love it. I also... Yeah, just don't tell him that you think
2: of him as the grandfather character. I also don't think that this should be 88. I think that's insane. I seems a little low. I get the fact that this is a movie What was
1: English patient?
2: (laughs) Way too high. Yeah. (laughs) I get the feeling... I get the... Like, I get it that this is a movie that is, is, like, more of a, I guess, silly and fun and everything, but I still think it, that kind of
1: overlooks the fact that it's just a very well-made movie. I, I think this movie kind of encapsulates... Obviously, it encapsulates Beatlemania yeah. at the time and kind of that idea, but it also kind of encapsulates that the whole British invasion idea. Like, you know, they're coming to the States. They're, uh, uh, well, I guess they're not in the States in this movie, but they're going to eventually get to the States. And, well, they have. They've already done it. Yeah. Then. So... You know, it, it kind of encapsulates this era of of Britain really coming to fruition on the pop culture stage of the world. Certainly Britain had been uh, uh, a presence in the world, a uh, negative presence in many cases, yeah. uh, but this really brought British pop culture to the forefront.
2: I can only quote what one of the crew members said during the commentary track. The 60s, as people know it, was about 800 people, but everyone knew about them. That's true that's true so um so yeah no i'm i'm totally on board this movie's great uh you have to have this on the list i mean this yeah. is a representation of a, the beetle mania you can't yeah. have a british film institute top yeah. 100 british films list without the Beatles on it in without some the form the biggest
1: british band that's ever been
2: exactly yeah um, um i actually didn't wanted to mention this quick because i didn't mention this earlier but this movie actually cost one hundred eighty thousand pounds oh they're gonna say
1: 180 million
2: no Oh uh, <laughs> <no>, god <laughs> It cost a lot to rent that train. In the U.S., Then this is at the time, it made $1.75 million. That's a return. Yeah. Gotta like that. Good job, fellas. So this movie's great. I love it. I know Jason loves it. We both love it. Yeah. Problem solved. Now, um, what we're going to do now, Jason...
1: It's that time. It's that time. So I know last week we fudged the dice roll because we wanted to watch this movie because we had the interview with Gary, but... But this week we are going back to the well. We are I, gonna roll the dice. I love how you're on a first name basis with them already. Yeah, Gary, I didn't Gary. even talk to him, but it's uh, Gary. so as you know, we have a ten we have a green tens D ten and we have a red ones D ten. We roll the green, we'll roll the red, we will get our number. We'll get our number on the BFI Top One hundred, and
2: whatever movie corresponds with that number is the movie we are gonna talk about next week. And Jason, that is gonna be our
1: sixtieth movie. Sixty movies. So following that, we will do our kind of twenty movie wrap up. Yes. And awards. Absolutely. Give it some awards. And also uh, knowing that, you know that it is going to be a less than fifty percent chance that I will roll a movie and not have to roll again. So let's see what we got. All Jason right. has a real good history with this. All right, so we're going with the green. So what we, our, what, what our decade, of, decade we of movies is the oh the zero zeros. Oh, okay. Top no, ten. There's only two chant two two things we can get here. <laughs> Nine.
2: No, we well, have already done the red shoes. Fair enough.
1: Wow, I didn't realize Red Shoes was that high. Yeah. I think Matter of Life and Death should have been higher, but we'll talk about that.
2: Matter of Life and Death was 20. I mean, that's not terrible. Uh, tens. Okay, there's a few. 19. Okay, this is a big one, Jason. This yeah? is a big one, and I'm actually going to announce it like...
1: Is it oh. It's... it's is it's chariots of fire
2: chariots of fire wow i didn't realize that was a british movie 1981 directed by hugh hudson that is the film that is number 19 on the bfi is that a long movie i mean it's a standard length okay but we're gonna talk about chariots of fire next week that's it that's that's a big one yeah um so tune in for that now we're obviously gonna plug here so of course uh you can uh you can find us on twitter at bfi underscore pod you can also find us on facebook
1: by searching for for screen and contra. you can find jason on twitter at jason d mcleod as we said earlier m a c l e o d find me follow me um and then we're i guess we're good because then you can respond to tweets that i tweet
2: yeah you can you can give him some hard nights or some and hard maybe and maybe if you're cool i'll follow you back if you're cool. If you're cool. If you're retweeting Richard Spencer, he probably won't follow you. Better. And
1: hey, like like some of our serial commenters, Andrew Littlefield, Sharon Horwit, you don't have Twitter accounts? Follow me, damn it, if you haven't already.
2: Jason's very upset.
1: Yeah, come on, guys. You're every week on here. Follow me, damn it.
2: So, Jason, that's about, that's about it. We're going to talk about Chariots of Fire next week. All right. I just got to say to you, God save the queen. God save the screen. And for Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Please stay tuned for our interview with Gary Kroger. All right, folks, you've seen him in films like The Big Picture and Radioland Murders. He's been on episodes of L.A. Law, Murder, She Wrote, and Dilbert. And then, of course, he was a cast member on my favorite show, Saturday Night Live, for three seasons. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Gary Kroger.
0: Well, thank you very much. You, you didn't mention one credit that I love, though. Curb oh. Your Enthusiasm. You were on Curb. I do remember that. Yes. Yes, I was the famous <laughs> weatherman. So, of, of all things that I've done, even though SNL sort of leads the charge, Curb Your Enthusiasm is probably the thing that gets the most questions. What was Larry David really like?
2: I'm assuming, and if I can guess the answer, he's Larry David.
0: Yeah, and and, and uh, he he is that char- he isn't that character. He is who- that character is everything into one that larry david has lives in a more horizontal life you know what i mean (laughs) yeah everything five years of experience has become a day and that's the character on the show (laughs) he's a heightened larry david right
2: (laughs) yeah Um, So, Gary, of course, in this episode here, we're talking about uh, A Hard Day's Night, the 1964 uh, Beatles film, which, of course, is a huge, huge, huge part of culture, especially, uh, you know, on the other side of the water. Um, But I know that you yourself are a giant Beatles fan, uh, to say the least. So I mean just right off the top a hard day's night like what do you what do you think about this this movie it's it's number 88 on the BFI's top 100 British films of all time list that to me right away seems really low in terms of like the impact it's made on culture
0: well you know it it, it was a throwaway film in a sense you know it was very successful it was the budget was like half a million dollars maybe it increased to 800 thousand dollars or something turned around and made 11 million dollars now that doesn't seem like great money in today's market but if you do the math to 1964 that's a lot of money and it's a huge return on the investment so it was a very popular film and it was very well received but it was well received and at the same time a little bit dismissed it was a pop film about The Beatles, a pop group. So over the years, I don't think that it got the attention that it deserved in an active sort of way. You know, film critics wouldn't come out and say, well, there was a great film. But about, I don't know how many decades ago, there's been a Beatle renaissance because a new generation that didn't grow up like I did with them discovered them and they discovered the film. And a new generation of criticism has sort of looked at that and go, wait a second that is a really cool movie. You know, it used every cinematic sort of trick, every sort of bit of editing and comic timing. It was scripted, but yet scriptless in a way. And it came together to fashion the epic perception of, the, of Beatlemania. So in looking back at it now, because I, I watch it in the garage probably once a month, <laughs> It really is a seminal film, and it's 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 being recognized. I think over the years, it may move up. Of course, there'll be more great movies made. But to be in the top 100 sort of pantheon of great British cinema, that's pretty cool. And it deserves to be there or higher.
2: Well, and, and I guess my follow-up to that question is... Uh... Is there any other like Beatles maybe film that you think might even be suitable to replace it, or do you think like this is the this is the one to put it on the? Well, it's on that it's,
0: list? it's the pin. You know, John Lennon said that's the one we did in black and white, and the other one was colored. <laughs> but um, Beatlemania, as I sort of alluded to, Beatlemania was really capsulized in this movie. Alan Owen hung out with them for a little while, not a whole lot of time. Picked up their meter, saw that they were fair. Four very distinct personalities, Lenin's acerbic wit, and he put together this sort of mishmash of, you know, it's what is it? Two days in the lives of the Beatles or something like that, or 24 hours in the lives of the Beatles. And being in black and white, the dark haired mop top guys, the dark suits, the dark tie, the black beetle boots, it became the image of Beatlemania. It's what we imagined they went through every day with girls chasing them as soon as they walked out and they would run into a car and open the car door and run into another car. It created all of our fantasies about Beatlemania. Well, no other film was going to do that. The next film made one year later, Help, was really sort of a James Bondy spoofy, you know, comic thriller. But it didn't try to make the Beatles the Beatles. They were almost Marx brother so there's no film like that. And certainly Yellow Submarine, well, that was just they didn't even provide the voices for that, just the music. So, and Let It Be was sort of became the known as the disintegration of the Beatles, although we're going to see Jackson's new take with 54 new hours of Beatles footage from 1969. I think we'll get a very different sense of the end of the Beatles. But no, there's no other film like A Hard Day's Night to give us the sense of the four cuddly, lovable musical mop top funny mark 's brother like best friends who conquered the world
2: yeah, and, and i mean i think I think it 's almost um, interesting in that way where you have uh, you have a, a, a very distinct style in this movie that hadn 't really been done before. Um, and a lot of times you see this style done like well the first time but but you know it they kind of improve on it in years to come like you see something later where you know th- it's this but you know now it's like even better but i think this is one of those cases where i don't think this has ever quite been duplicated or even like topped by anything but- quite like it
0: Right. No, exactly. And look at the timeline. The Beatles hit America, Ed Sullivan, February 9, 1964. Then they go to Washington, D.C. They do a concert. Then they go down to uh, the Deauville Hotel to do Ed Sullivan the next week in Florida. And then in March, they start A Hard Day's Night, and it's put together and released in Britain in July, (laughs) This yeah. is all in the span of a few months. They aren't professional actors. They're just, you know, they're media savvy because they've done a lot of interviews and things, and they clearly had this unique chemistry. But nobody knew yet what this was going to be, really. So they threw it together in a way. They found Richard Lester, who directed The Goon Show, which they loved because it was it was just a pastiche of comedic, goofy scenes. So they took that mindset with Alan Owen's script they improvised and famous things like Lennon taking a bottle of Coke and snorting it on the train. I mean, a little bit ahead of its time, right? (laughs) Um, And put it together. And I think part of its magic is the fact that it was all done so quickly. They didn't labor the thoughts. Should we do this? Do it, do it, put it in. Can we get it? You know, they just did it. And I think that has a lot to do with why it was—it—it seems so spontaneous.
2: Um, now, of course, we talk—I talked about this before. You're a giant Beatles fan. Um, describe kind of how you first got into it, and I mean, you've got some—you've got some crazy. St- memorabilia yeah. including something you posted recently that i was just like not surprised because i know who you've worked with but also just shocked that you still managed to
0: maintain it oh, yeah, they're right there yeah You're talking about ringo's cigarette ashes oh yeah yeah they're right there um <laughs> i was look i'm older than you are but i was seven when the beatles hit And I'm just discovering music and I'm looking for my own sounds. My dad liked cowboy music. And I remember riding in the back of our, I think it was a 57 Chevy, you know, our old car. And dad's going through the AM radio and he goes by, I want to hold your hand. So I hear just a couple of bars and he goes by it quickly, of course. And I go, dad, dad, go back, go back. (laughs) So I remember the magic of that major chord and just this feeling. You know, and even though I was only seven, I was very aware that our president had been assassinated. And there was a pall over America. And all of a sudden, these four guys that didn't look like any American boys that we knew, who all kind of looked the same, had a funny accent, and they did this amazing, positive-sounding music. I was hooked. Hooked. And I've never stopped being hooked because I remember how I feel. But the thing about the Beatles is they never let us down either. Okay, great album. Oh my goodness, Rubber Soul, great album. You know, Revolver, even better. The White Album, you still discover it. Abbey wrote, they never disappointed in this less than 10 year career.
2: That's kind of um, unique, right? For a band that has this much impact, you never really, a lot of people never really stopped to think they weren't around for that long, really, when you think about it.
0: No, they weren't. And, you know, it it seems like I would, of course, indoctrinate my children. I didn't actively indoctrinate my kids, but they heard the music. But every generation, including you, sort of discover the sound, the diversity of it, the growth of it. Some of the meaning of it is simply gobbledygook, but it was intentional. You know, Lenin would write just got and people say, What does it mean? It's to just throw some words together, it's just gobbledygook, you know. But nevertheless, we attach meaning and we keep attaching meaning. And my son sing, was singing I am the walrus the other day. <laughs> you know, he's only 21. So, you know, that's why it just keeps continuing and we keep looking into the archives to see if we can find something new about their relationship. I think it's so enduring that long after I'm gone, long after my children are gone, they're going to be podcasts or, or, or whatever they're called in, in you a know, hundred years from now, talking about the Beatles.
2: It, it, you know, you, you hear about a lot of that. One, one example I always think of is, uh, is something that is kind of not had that lasting effect. Is something like ET, where I think in the early eighties you had ET, which is a phenomenon for many, many years. And, in the last five, 10 years, you don't really hear anyone talking about E.T. anymore. Like, but something like The
0: Beatles has just persevered throughout. Yeah, and you know, and ladies and gentlemen, this is unrehearsed, so these are brand new sort of thoughts. But ha- you having said that, E.T. was magical, but the production value, as great as it was, we've transcended. Yeah. So we can put those things, even Star Wars, sort of into a box where, well, it doesn't hold up quite the same. But when it comes to music, it's always transcendent. It's timeless, you know? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the breadth of music that the Beatles created from little, you know, Hallmark card type Valentines to deep, intense mental introspections in that short period of time, well, that will always turn people on. It'll always seem brand new. You know, there, there are new recording techniques, but it still sort of sounds the same. That's you' true. Know. Chord yeah. is a chord.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess some modern fans may argue there's not enough auto-tune in, uh, in Beatles songs. <laughs> <Right.
0: laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Or any. <laughs> yeah. they, and one of the amazing things about the Beatles is they had unique voices. And even Ringo was just a little bit flat. They were always in tune. Mm-hmm. You know, it, their live act really blended. You know, their ears were quite perfect.
2: I'm glad you mentioned Ringo because I did want to ask you this. Now I just watched this movie for the first time for this podcast, uh, just this past week or I guess yesterday. Um, but my question is now: Ringo Starr always, obviously, always has had this uh, this kind of silly reputation as like, oh, he's the put upon Beetle. You know, he's he's the kind of the other Beetle, the fourth guy. And it kind of seems like it, that's happening in the movie. So has that been a thing like since day one? Has that been a joke since the beginning amongst like
0: the the boys or? Yeah, and, and obviously I, I wasn't the fly on the wall that I would have <laughs> liked to have been. But, you know, Ringo was a little bit shorter. He he's, he looks, he has a cute, funny look that's actually matured into a handsome 80-year-old man, right? But he would, you know, he had, a, as, as you say, a large net um, and b- b- blue eyes, and he was the drummer. And the drummer was very different. In the background just held the beat, his head, you know, he was, it was real easy to sort of, attach yourself to this guy, because he seemed more accessible. But at the same time, his, his function within the band was a little more two-dimensional, and just his own sort of laconic way of being uh, was self-deprecating. You know, as John would say, he in, in, inappropriately said malapropisms. isms I think, but he was talking about Ringoisms, these malaprops, like a hard day's night, for example, which is just one of Ringo's weird ways of saying, we worked really hard tonight, you know, into the next day, right, or whatever, yeah. or tomorrow never knows. These are Ringo-isms. So I think the, the three of them sort of looked at him as well as the comic relief. And so it was real easy to put that into the movies, and it was real easy for us fans to go, oh, gosh, but if there's somebody I want to spend the day with at the amusement park, it's Ringo
2: um i'm gonna now i'm gonna hit you with a question that might I don't, I don't know maybe this will be easy maybe this will be i don't i don't think i can answer this but two two parts here um your favorite of the four and maybe your favorite beatles song that you truly wish people knew more of like maybe one that's not in the pop
0: culture as much G- great questions and i can answer them okay. um i'm left-handed So when I saw, you know, and there's the iconic look of the Beatles with Paul on stage, right? With his left-handed bass, which by the way, right over there is a left-handed Hoffner bass right there in my, in my office, a left-handed Hoffner bass. Um, And John on the other side, George in the middle and Ringo up on the drums. So, and Paul was just so cute, you know, the arched eyebrows and the girls screamed for him that when I was a little boy on the playground with my three mates, And we would be the Beatles and the girls would chase us. That's how I went through, you know, first and second grade. I was Paul. And I also liked Paul's music. I loved the fact that he could do a screamer ballad or or not do a screamer as well as do a ballad. You know, I admired John Lennon. It's sort of the cliche. I thought Ringo was cute. George, you know, was the spiritual one. But Paul McCartney, to me, was the one I wanted to be. To have girls scream for me, be left-handed like I am. Um, yeah, Paul was my favorite Beatle.
2: And I mean, the ringleader of the group, right? Essentially.
0: Well, he became, in a sense, the you know, he was the quintessential Beatle. He loved the Beatles more than the other four Beatles, I think. Mm-hmm. I think he still does. Um, even though he was the one to sue the other three to dissolve the Beatles, blah, 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 long story. Um, he loved being a Beatle. It really identified him. Whereas Lennon, I think, really wanted to identify himself separately from the Beatles. Paul McCartney really... That's who he is. You know, that's why he still does all the cute little things. And, you know, he's, he still acts like a beetle getting off the plane. Um, songs, there's a lot. I was just... And he does this in concert, so I can't say it's a lost Paul McCartney song, but it's things we said today. Okay. You say you will love me if I have to go. Uh, it just had so many levels to it. It was a real... Uh, sort of acidic ballad and still very, very pretty. And then it picks up in the middle eight. I've always loved that song and it's sort of forgotten. If a Beatles song can be forgotten, it's not, Hey Jude, you know, or let it be.
2: Yeah, no, I I mean that you're, that's the first, the first I've ever heard of that song. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So there you go. So people, just... when we... all right, <laughs> that, we probably have to buy
0: the right. So I won't sing anymore.
2: No, we got 30 seconds. You're good. Um, <laughs> that's right. Uh what was i going to say well yeah no and I, I wondered actually now that you mentioned that there's a song i heard recently and it sounded like i don't even know if it officially got a release it sounds like they were just messing around in the studio but he's paul is singing a song about the queen he's singing a song uh she's a
0: pretty nice girl and it doesn't have a lot to say dun, 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 yeah she's a pretty nice girl She changes from day to day i want to tell her that i love her a lot but i gotta get a belly full of wine her majesty's a pretty nice girl Some day, yeah that one there mm-hmm. i'll throw away Paul McCartney was brilliant at creating throwaways and then sort of creating little songs that never developed. And so at the very end of Abbey Road, they just threw Her Majesty on there. Not much of a song, but... There it
2: is. But it like refreshing in a way, because you don't really see that anymore. You don't really no. see like a band just goofing around and, you know, just right. put something together on the fly. And I mean, what really adds to that is you, you kind of hear the band like the chattering among yeah. amongst themselves yeah. while he's singing and then they slowly start to join in. So I just yeah. I thought that was uh, that was interesting.
0: Yeah, well, you know, they were so experimental, and there was no other band that was doing that. They were given the baton, say, okay, you're the band, you are the leaders. So they took some liberties in the studio with just sound effects and tape loops and throwaway songs, putting them together, and George Martin's Mastery, his brilliant production, where they would create sort of a rock symphony like the second side of Abbey Road, where they just sort of shoehorned bits of songs together. John Lennon's come out to sort of criticize that, saying, I didn't care much for it. He didn't like his own songs like Mean Mr. Mustard. But we, beatle fields uh, and really fans in general, hear that, and it's just a progression of harmonies and sounds and rhythms that, uh, that continue to captivate. But no one else was doing that at that time.
2: Do you think that now, do you think that when the Beatles were, I mean, I guess at their height, um, if the the recording studios would have been perfectly fine with them just being a
0: flavor of the month pop band? Well, maybe it's hard to say because, you know, the here's the thing about the Beatles. The book hadn't been written yet on how you do it. We hadn't seen a pop band emerge to this where they become musical, cultural Phenomena. We hadn't seen, sure we'd seen girls screaming for Elvis, but we hadn't seen people playing their own music, playing their own guitars, writing their own music up in front of people who are going crazy and screaming. So there was no narrative by which to say, oh, you know what? The Rolling Stones did that. No, no, they were blazing the way. So I don't think there could have been the Beatles without the way it happened. In other words, they got a recording contract. They finally got a number one in America. They came, they went on to Ed Sullivan, 60 million people saw them. And now suddenly people are screaming for them. They're screaming for the pop act, the musical act. They perfected their songs to be live concert songs. But when they got tired of cigarette lighters and jelly beans th- being thrown at them and death threats and they quit touring in 66, they went, well, now we're in the studio. We're now a studio band because we're not going to do that anymore. But in the studio, that's when they discovered the next era of Beatle music, which is more sophisticated. It's more mature. It has more depth. And the reason they didn't perform again, even after a couple of years, is they thought, well, we can't recreate these sounds live. How do you do I Am the Walrus live? Yeah. Now we could. And Paul McCartney does do all of his crazy stuff live, and it's beautiful, and it sounds perfect. But back then, they couldn't recreate it. So they said, well, we don't want to. And we're certainly not going to go back and sing. She loves you anymore,
2: right? No, that and that's and that's interesting too. Is that a band that that has you know, like you said, progressed to the next level in their in their style? Um, also, didn't want to go back and perform the old stuff. It's right. like we're 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 past that stage. I mean, you look at uh, most concerts now, and you know they'll perform the hits. And then they'll go back and they'll do their, they'll do like, you know, an hour of new stuff. And you're like, all right, uh, bathroom break. Right, that's
0: when you go to the bathroom, right? <laughs> exactly right? And even McCartney knows that in his concerts now. Well, you know, it's funny because I read every, you know, John Lennon obviously stopped giving quotes in 1980. But I read everything that I can find. And he made a comment to some interviewer. It could have been Rolling Stone where he said, you know, I listen to the old stuff sometimes. I'd love to do Help one more time, and I'd love to slow it down the way I intended it. And he said, you know what a really pretty melody is? I want to hold your hand. You know, you sort of think, oh, just this pop, you know, song. And he goes, no, it's a really pretty melody that he was very proud of. And he said, I think I'll take another shot at that. Unfortunately, you know, that opportunity didn't come.
2: Yeah, no, and I mean that was—I I mean I—I I can't place myself there, but I mean if you want to talk about that for a second too, I mean that's 1980, right?
0: What are you about nine years old? <laughs> Born in '86. Well, <laughs> really?
2: Okay. You're, yeah. you're
0: a young man. But here you are—you're interested in the Beatles, you know? And oh, I love
2: the Beatles. I love the Beatles for a while. I just—I'm—I just, don't know, like a lot about the more obscure. Obviously. You don't have to. Okay. You don't have to. You don't <laughs> so we're not. So we're not doing that.
0: <laughs> No, We're not doing no. that whole, uh, you're, 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 you're a, you're a fake fan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was working with, uh, with a person, a young woman, and she's, I don't know, 25 years younger than me. And she said, Oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't care for the Beatles. And they go, really? And she says there are no Beatles songs. Oh, well, you know, I really like, Hey Jude. Yeah. What about let it be. Oh, I love that. Eleanor Rigby. Oh yeah. I'm the walrus. Oh, an amazing song. So I rattled off 12 songs and I go, okay, your favorite band, name 12 songs that you like as much. And she went, oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) So, I mean, that's sort of the thing about the Beatles. But, you know, John Lennon, I was in college, and I was in an improv comedy group, the Practical Theater, which went on to do Saturday Night Live. Um, And our theater, this was before John Lennon was shot, we called it the John Lennon Auditorium because we loved his commitment to artistic integrity, to a search for the truth, admitting your flaws, trying to conquer them, being transparent, and working toward progress and peace. I mean, that, in a nutshell, was what we thought of John Lennon. So we named our theater the John Lennon Auditorium. We wrote to him, hoping he, hoping he would sort of christen, like, oh, that, what a, thank you. <laughs> and then he was shot and killed. And uh, I watched it on Monday Night Football, Howard, the Howard Cosell told me. And I, we were just stunned. It was just stunned. All of Chicago, it seemed, went to the lakeshore and there's this hill where they play cricket and it's called Cricket Hill. And thousands upon thousands of us just walked like, you know, blindly to this hill silently and John Lennon music was playing and it was a galvanizing moment where we realized, wow, the impact of his life and his death is never going to fade away. Again, the breadth of John Lennon's impact on culture, music, images, sounds, um, and to be assassinated, that's sort of unequaled. With John Lennon, for me and my friends, it was like, what we, we looked forward to every new thing he was going to say and do. What's the new phase? What's the new chapter? What's the new revelation? And for that to be cut off, his future, it just impacted us really profoundly obviously
2: well gary i'm gonna i'm gonna uh turn turn the uh the the frown upside down here um (laughs) a little little upbeat here because i do want to ask this i can't go this whole interview without asking you this because in 1984 it's your uh third season on saturday night live uh season 10 the uh people know that's the that's the famous one where they brought in martin short billy crystal christopher guest uh pamela stevenson rich hall it's a huge huge season and then i believe it was you julia louis dreyfus mary mary gross and jim belushi that stayed on from the previous year yeah um most of the cast from the previous year i believe was let go or or quit
0: or or quit right
2: um but 1984 Ringo Starr is coming to host the show now before he even gets there when you how do you hear about this and what's your like are you freaking out or what's your reaction to
0: this yeah I mean you know you don't really know you know they try to stay pretty current they don't book the year because somebody has a hit album or something so you look at the the board you know well I don't know who's next week and then it's like well we might get Ringo Starr really really this is only three years after four years after Lennon was was killed I don't think he'd been back to New York I'm not sure And then it's confirmed. And for me, it was like, well, am I even going to get a chance? You know, there's heavyweights on this show, Martin Short and Billy Crystal. They're all going to get in there. Even though I'm the Beatle freak of the group, uh, I just wondered, am I, you know, of course, I'm going to get an autograph picture, which is right over here as well. (laughs) But, you know, then he's there. For me, it's, I don't know, I don't want to sound like I, I worship, but this is a person that I've been looking at pictures of my whole life, as long as I could remember, from when I was six, seven years old. So there he is. There's the actual nose. There are his actual blue eyes. There's Barbara Bach. And what they did is Barbara and Ringo were escorted to each writer's office, and I, we're all writer performers. And they're in my office, and my office is filled with Beatle posters. And Ringo says, you just put those up for me, didn't you? And I go, no, Mr. Starkey, those are, I'm a Beatle fan. I had a Polish Hard Day's Night poster. And he goes, well, I, you know, what What do you want to do? And he says, I don't want to do any Beatle stuff. And I thought, really? Because <laughs> uh, I had this idea from A Hard Day's Night. This is a perfect sort of tie-in oh, here. There's the This Boy sequence, dun, 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 where Ringo is lost and he goes off on his little adventure, befriends the small boy, takes pictures on the streets of London, right, by the mm-hmm. riverbank. And it's it's a very iconic, well-known, in fact, cinem, cinem, uh, the cinematography is really, really beautiful. It's, it's very well-known, and people talk about the uh, artistic elements of the this boy sequence of Ringo in that movie and I said hey Ringo what if at the start of the show we can't find you somebody hurt your feelings and you go off into New York it turns to black and white and we hear we hear the music from a hard day's night and you have this little adventure until we find you again <laughs> well it would have been perfect I love that it would have <laughs> been transcendent And Ringo said, no, don't want to do anything from the Beatles. (laughs) Now, he ended up doing um, a spoof where he's auctioned at a Beatles uh, auction. Yeah. And I'm a bidder, and I bid on Paul McCartney's toothbrush over Ringo Starr. (laughs) And it was funny, and it was cute. But I thought, well, that was a Beatle thing. Mine would have been so much more respectful. As you can see, I'm still grinding an axe over this. (laughs) But I kept, you know, he said, you have an ashtray. And I go, well, no, I just have this coffee cup. So he flicked his ashes in there and I put cellophane over the top and I've kept them for, what, 35 years, 36 years.
2: So That's still in, still, you could still, uh, they're, they're still
0: there and everything. Right? Yeah, yeah, they're still there. And I suppose I could put it on eBay. But how do you verify ashes? Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but the overall
2: experience of working with Ringo Starr? Of though? course
0: it was. I was backstage yeah. with him. And for some reason he said, you know, me son, Zach a drummer. And I go, yeah, I know. I know everything about you, sir. I know. And he said, my son, Zach. his, Zach's mentor was not his father, who, who he respected. <laughs> but, and I do this because Ringo was a metronome, um, was Keith Moon. Ringo's buddy was Keith okay. Moon. So Zach learned, he said, dad, can you do this? And he does all these fancy things and so on and so forth. And then he hits the hi-hat and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, no, son, but can you do this? And he beats out one time signature with this hand and another time signature, which you can't do with the other hand. And I went, well, that's why you're Ringo. That's why you were the drummer for the Beatles, the greatest composers in pop history. You were their drummer because you could do and improvise anything the song needed. Mm -hmm. And so I had that little private moment with Ringo where he pointed out the difference between a flashy drummer and a great drummer like Keith Moon and his son, Zach. But that's why he's Ringo.
2: (laughs) Another thing I heard about this show, um, I just want to get into this episode a little bit more, but I did hear that um, there was a major rewrite uh, a couple days before the show aired or something. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but I know in the Live from New York book um, that was published 10, 15 years ago, yeah. they mentioned, uh, somebody mentioned, or maybe it was Dick Ebersol that mentioned, but they they cut, they basically redid the show. I don't know if this is true. Maybe this is just him not remembering... 100% you know, correct. I
0: think we, we may be. I don't remember, to be okay. honest with you. But there's a germ, a, a little speck of something in my brain here. So maybe I'll say this and it'll become new history, whether it's true or not. <laughs> it kind of seems to me, going back to the I don't want to do any Beatles stuff, I think there's this possibility that he didn't really. There was a consensus that the show wasn't quite good enough. And that's why they threw in some things that would be uh, popular like the Beatles auction with Ringo. Um, uh, Ringo came out and did with a little help from my friends with Billy Crystal as I think what Sammy Davis Jr. or something I think like so, that. Yeah. Um, they threw in those surefire little things to pep. I kind of think maybe that's what happened.
2: I think, I think that's what it is. I think uh, because it was a very reoccurring character heavy show and i think yeah. that's i think that's uh, i think that's what it is yeah so they, may- they
0: ringoized it so they sort of betrayed <laughs> and even ringo betrayed his own premise to not do Beatles stuff by doing some meh <laughs> but they worked
2: uh, if he had just done the cold open everything would have been great you know he'd be on the top of the world right now instead of who is he ringo
0: star come on <laughs> <laughs> say no more say no more and and as i become senile and forget the truth i will remember that as if it happened so you know what i'll still get that chapter
2: yeah yeah that cold open air do you, you go yeah. back and it, watch it, the yeah, episode.
0: It, yes made my career
2: <laughs> um well my final question here just just throwing it out there P- people often say are you a Beatles person or are you a Rolling Stones person? And if somebody answers Rolling Stones, I want to know if you can truly be friends with them, number one. <laughs> and uh, number two, why do you think it co- it's always between those two specific bands? Like, what, what is it about them that makes that well, question? They were,
0: both, they were both the British invasion, the first one and two punch of the British invasion, really. The Beatles came first and the Rolling Stones would admit if it hadn't been for the Beatles conquering in America, the door wouldn't have opened for them. But, you know, they knew each other in the clubs quite well, actually, just playing the clubs around, you know, England. And they even commented, I think Mick Jagger once commented, that they'd be up there doing their thing. And they were basically a blues act, right? They didn't write their own material. And they said the Beatles would come in, and they were always dressed the same, long leather coats. And they had this sense of being this impenetrable club. They laughed among themselves. You could just tell they had this chemistry. They were like no other group. So even Mick Jagger will say, yeah, these guys were different. So the Beatles came and they became the lovable pop phenomenon. But it opened the door for Herman's Hermits. But, you know, really, the Rolling Stones had the gravitas and they had the talent. They had the musicality and they had the partnership and the chemistry to create great music it was alternative music in a sense it certainly wasn't pop tunes after you know they, they established themselves with uh, i want to be your man written by lennon mccartney um but they established themselves as the naughty beatles sort of you know <laughs> if you were a little bit more rugged and a little bit more raw you know oh, the beatles are too cute and you know i'm a stones guy so that division was always sort of there But I didn't dislike the Rolling Stones, not one bit. I would hear this music. I can't get no satisfaction in this and go, wow, this has its place, too. You know, this probably plays a little bit later at the barbecue than, you know, (laughs) I want to hold your hand. After the kids have gone to bed. Right. (laughs) This has a place. And I never stopped loving the Beatles when I formed with my buddies our own high school band we all gave that a shot right and I was the lead singer I came out dressed as Mick Jagger I even had an omega and a cape a pink satin cape (laughs) There, there are pictures somewhere and we would my friend Dave who was the leader of the band said you know if we do one more Rolling Stones song we might as well call ourselves the Rolling Stones you know we covered more of that than we did the Beatles because that just got the kids grinding you know So I never looked at it being a competition exactly. And when you look at things like when the Beatles telecast to the world, all you need is love. Who's sitting there in the audience? Mick Jagger, you know, they went to India. Mick Jagger's there too. Uh, So it was less competitive. I think they looked at each other's work competitively sometimes, you know, the Beatles did magical mystery tour, um, the, the Stones did uh, uh, the, her Satanic Majesties, or whatever that was called. Yeah, they they cross-pollinated once in a while, probably competitively. But if if you're a Stones fan and you hate the Beatles, fooey with you. If you're a Stones fan and you also like the Beatles, awesome, because so do I. You know, John Lennon would say angry. He wrote, "How do you sleep at night?" And that's a bunch of mean puns about Paul McCartney. But <laughs> And so the press and the public loves to say, oh, they hated each other. It's an enduring story. But the truth is, it was all done because they respected each other. They loved each other. They missed each other. You know, Keith Richards has made some dismissive comments about Beatle music. But that's simply because that's not his type of music. But he respects what they've done. He respects their musicianship. He certainly respected their success. Um, It just wasn't his cup of tea. Mm -hmm. you know so and i think and then when he says something like that it's you know it's a lead story and something keith richards disses the beatles
1: not
2: really keith richards hatred for paul McCartney seething (laughs) yeah Yeah, right right
0: (laughs) wasn't the way reality is a lot slower than news blurbs you know (laughs) and a lot more happens in the actual experience of life than this vertical thing that we read
2: well, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll, I'll finish it on one more quick question here. I, I And I'm putting you on the spot maybe a little no, bit. No, I,
0: I enjoy this tremendously.
2: <laughs> um, we're obviously on this podcast, we're talking about the British Film Institute, top 100 British films of all time. So I'm wondering if there's something, besides A Hard Day's Night, because obviously that's the best movie ever made. Uh, <laughs> is there like a, a particular um, British film that you really like? Like it's like one Blow of up. your favorites. Blow Up? Blow Up. We just we talked about that on the show.
0: Well, uh, again, that was something that was it, it created a style, a look, a pace that was different. I, I watched that one all the time. I mean, it's funny that you asked that question, and that immediately came to mind. I, I know if I jog my my memory, I'll think of hundreds of others. Um, but you asked the question. There's my answer. What did you think of it?
2: I, I love Blow Up. I'm actually I'm actually very happy that you said a Blow Up because I feel like that doesn't ever get talked about anymore. Or maybe even not much at the time. I mean,
0: there was a time when I was a boy and we (laughs) only had three stations, you know, late night, they would run black and white films. And it was just like a film noir fest. And and they would run these things annually because maybe there wasn't that much product to fill the pipeline. So you'd see these things and build an appreciation for them. Now we have 288 channels, but they're all kind of playing to the, pop hits you know the 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 recognized films so the ones that were sort of artistic endeavors like that um i i think they've just been put under a blanket yeah we don't see them as often
2: well gary thank you very much for joining us it's been a blast um i could talk to you i could ask you questions about saturday night live for the next seven hours uh but i won't take that much of your time (laughs) but thank you for coming on and uh talking about the beatles and yeah, thanks for
0: being here. Well, I, I've had a lot of fun. I could talk about Saturday Live. I could talk about the Beatles. What, 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 seven hours? how About seven days? All right, let's, let's do have a, it. Let's have a marathon. No sleep, just coffee, and we'll talk about you know anything. I've really enjoyed this, Brenda. Thank you. Thank you. We're